Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello and welcome to the Decoding Death podcast. Thank you very much for listening today. I wanted to start out today by reading a quote from one of my favorite poets named Rumi. Who could be so lucky? Who comes to a lake for water and sees the reflection of moon? I thought that was a beautiful quote and quite representative of what we are going to be trying to do with this episode. We are going to be exploring the symbolism of the lake as it appears in near-death experiences. And to do so, we are going to draw on religious ideas, mythology, folklore, spiritual traditions, and psychology. If you want to understand how these somewhat different topics can come together and help us understand the symbolism in near-death experiences, I highly recommend you listen to the first introductory episode of the new version of this podcast, which was called Decoding Death. But in short, what we're trying to do is recognize the objective nature of imagery as it appears, not only in ourselves and NDEs and dreams, but also collectively and culturally for societies and their art forms and religious ideas and their beliefs that an aspect of those things is autonomous in that it happens to us and is not created out of whole cloth. Because then if we can recognize the objective autonomous nature of inner phenomena and imagery and symbolism, then we have a reference point with which to each of us build our own myth of what happens to us after we die by understanding the meaning of certain symbols as they appear within us on their own. And if we can do this, I think this would provide a solid foundation to base our beliefs upon, not on something that we hear from someone else, but on our own direct experience. And so that is the goal of this podcast, to be a reference dictionary for symbolism and meaning, that we can start to recognize what possible symbols and images may mean, especially as they appear in near-death experiences. So with that little basis for us to go on, I want to get into our topic today, which is the symbolism of lakes. This came about when I read a specific NDE that featured a lake, which I thought was incredibly powerful and moving. So perhaps the best place to start this episode is just by reading this particular NDE. This is a near-death experience that I found on nderf.org, and it is coming to us from a woman named Cleo. It occurred in May of 2003. Quote, I was 34 weeks pregnant with my second child. Unfortunately, I experienced an undiagnosed placental abruption with a cuvier uterus. Therefore, The blood leaking from the abruption went into my uterus rather than out of my body. It was hours before the hospital realized what had happened. By then, I had lost a large portion of blood. They put me under general anesthesia and intubated me. I remember counting backwards and looking at the anesthesiologist. 
Then I was in an endless black void. I had the sense of infinity, and I had no body. I was just pure consciousness. Suddenly, there was a knowing that I was dying, and I was okay with it. All attachment to earthly material was just gone. As if to answer my question, a voice said, quote, All that remains is love. The voice was not a sound. Rather, it was just a kind of knowing. I understood this to mean that when I die, all that I bring with me is the sum of love I had given and received on earth. Next, I was being sucked backwards through a tunnel. I was suddenly aware of my body. I woke up and tried to pull out my intubation tube. The anesthesiologist put me back under. I was later told they were quite freaked out by me waking up and trying to take the tube out. After burying my stillborn daughter, I became obsessed with getting her back. I literally ached for her, in a way only a parent who has experienced loss can understand. We were given the green light to conceive six months afterwards. It was Christmas Eve, and I went to the church near our hometown. They have a little chapel dedicated to Mary. I went in to pray and said, Mary, you know what it feels like to lose a child. Please bring my daughter back to me. At this time, I was taken back to the void. It was in the form of a big, dark lake. I was in the lake, and small bubbles of phosphorescent light were swimming about. I found the one that was my daughter and merged with it. I was aware of my body in the chapel, but for those moments, I was in a very different place. I confirmed via ultrasound that I was pregnant a month or so later. The following September, I gave birth to a healthy baby girl via C-section. I wish I could say I spent every moment after this experience storing up love and that I had changed in some way. It took me 15 years to come to terms with the experience. I told no one. As a logical, down-to-earth person, I just couldn't accept it. But about two years ago, I started going through a spiritual awakening. I started asking questions about what happened to me. Since then, I finally caught up with the idea that love is truly the most important currency on earth. End quote. Okay. So I thought this NDE from Cleo was extraordinary for a couple different reasons. First, it's two separate experiences that share a connection. The first being the NDE that occurred from medical complications during childbirth. And the second was a almost spontaneous religious experience that occurred at Cleo's behest based on her pleas to the Virgin Mary, occurring in a chapel on Christmas Eve. And it's really fascinating what these two experiences describe because we get to see the active image formation that this podcast is all about, I suppose. Because in the first NDE that we're somewhat more familiar with, she's floating in a void and has some communication with a being or a voice. But in the second, she says she goes back to the void, but it takes the form of a 
big dark lake. And so she seems to identify the two places as the same, but in the spontaneous religious experience in the chapel, it takes a particular form. And in this case, it is taking the form of a lake. And in this lake, Cleo manages to find the soul or spirit of her unborn daughter floating around as a phosphorescent light, presumably among other souls or spirits. And she manages to merge with that spirit. And sure enough, a month later is confirmed to be pregnant. And so this vision sort of serves as a, almost symbolically she witnesses her own conception or the conception of her daughter within her and is an answer to her prayers to the Virgin Mary. And so it's an absolutely amazing experience. And it was very impactful to me when I read it, not only because it has such deep emotional tones to it, but also because it raises so many questions and so many ideas that I ended up fleshing out in the research for this episode. There are all these different seeds that are in this experience that in doing research on lakes and the symbolism of them and their role in spiritual and religious traditions, I see a lot of connections with this first experience that I ended up reading. So one such idea is almost explicitly mentioned in this account from Cleo, and that is an identification of the lake with the land or realm of the dead, where spirits live. This is something that I found many different examples of in cultures around the world, and we're going to talk about a few of them in particular. But it's a fascinating idea that comes straight from the text of Cleo's experience. And that is that the void that she sees while she's dying, she identifies with this image of the lake that she has when she is in the chapel. And so we're going to flesh that out. I just want to sort of put that out there as something that we're going to develop. And then another idea that emerges from Cleo's experience is the connection of the lake with a deity. Now, in this case, the vision of the lake occurs after she has petitioned the Virgin Mary for peace, for an answer, for grace to be connected with her unborn daughter. And sure enough, that is granted. Now, the Virgin Mary does not appear in the vision. But nonetheless, I was quite surprised to find a connection between the Virgin Mary and the lake. Now, for instance, the University of Notre Dame in South Bend actually has a full name that is not often invoked, and that is Notre Dame du Lac. That means Our Lady of the Lake, and it is a sort of fusion between Arthurian legend and medieval Christianity, identifying the Virgin Mary with this figure known as the Lady of the Lake. And that's something that we're going to get into in more depth. But more than that specific connection that I found, most of the research that I ended up doing found many connections between 
deities and specific lakes. And this can range from major religious figures such as Jesus or Brahma, all the way to more local goddesses or enchantresses that reside in a lake. And as I mentioned, we will get more into those examples and flesh them out a bit more to really substantiate them and show that what's going on in this experience probably is not just personal to Cleo, but extends to all of us, is a symbolic language that all of mankind partakes in in certain ways. And so just to summarize so far, there are two main themes that we are getting from Cleo's NDE that are going to be the basis of this episode. The first is the lake as the realm of the dead, or the afterlife, the place where the dead reside. The second is the lake's connection with a particular deity, as the Virgin Mary is the closest thing Christianity has to a goddess. And then finally, as you might have guessed from the title of this episode, this symbol is not complete without looking at its dark side. And so the third theme that we're going to explore is the negative side of the lake, and that is usually manifested as a lake of fire. And it also comes with a connection with lake monsters and snakes and dragons and all of these evil, dark things lurking under the water. And while this is not explicitly mentioned in Cleo's experience, there was another near-death experience I found that had this image of the lake of fire. And so we're going to get into some of those ideas to try and fully round out this complicated and complex symbol. And so as we talk about these three themes, the lake as the land of the dead, the connection with deity, the dark side of the lake, and the lake of fire, we are always going to try to tie it back to what it may mean to our psychology, what it may represent within us. And that would be a way of relating to this image that we can make sense of it and recognize it in our own dreams or daily life. Okay, so having read Cleo's NDE and seen how the lake appeared in her story, and also having laid out these three themes that we're going to be on the lookout for, I thought it might be useful to now read a couple different NDEs that I found that feature a lake. Now, as you'll see, I think they have a similar feel to them, and I'm only going to read the relevant part for our discussion. A lot of times, these NDE stories have the full experience in what happened before and what happened after, and in order to keep us on track, I'm only going to read uh, the content, the, the meat of the experience of when it's actually happening. And that way we'll be able to see this image in action and be able to compare its appearance more readily. So starting out, we have a NDE from a man named Doug, and this is coming from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website. Quote, When I fell and broke my neck, I remember seeing my hand in front of my face. Then it faded to black, like an old TV set used to do. How long I was unconscious for, I am unsure. I think it was at least five minutes. 
I remember quite a bit during the time I was out, which felt like hours. I remember walking beside a tree overlooking a lake. It was the most beautiful place I have ever seen. The lake was pristine and a beautiful color like I have never seen before. The lake was surrounded by a hillside with bulrushes and lily pads close to the edge. There was a bird that looked like a heron standing in the rushes. On the far side of the lake was a forest of trees. To my right, there was a tree trunk split as it left the ground, making it look like two trees were growing there. The colors were vivid. The place had a quiet peace about it. Quite literally, it was the nicest and most tranquil place that I have ever experienced. End quote. Okay. So, with that in mind, let's read the next experience that I found. This is coming from a man named Chris. Quote, I passed out in the car and awoke in an ambulance long enough to give my name and address. I went out again. I felt that I was floating on an inner tube on a sunlit lake, completely surrounded by the sparkling reflections, diamond-like. I had a true feeling of peace, contentment, and happiness. Then I faintly heard my name being called and a slight sensation of pressure on my chest. Reluctantly, I responded and awoke in a hospital emergency room and immediately went out again. End quote. So the next indie I have has a similar sort of vibe, and I think you'll start to get a sense of the pattern that I was coming across. This is from a man named Steve. Quote, I was dizzy and sick to my stomach and scared then. Suddenly, I was in a field overlooking a lake. I was overwhelmed by the deep green color of the trees and grass. The grass was blowing from a gentle breeze. The grass was long, I would say about 10 to 12 inches. I was alone there, but felt a spiritual presence watching over me. I had this relaxed feeling that I had completed everything I was to complete in my life. There was nothing else to do. No lists of things, like to-do lists. I had completed my tasks, and now could rest. Rest in a way that is hard to explain. Rest with nothing coming up to do. No tomorrow, no next week. Time and effect seemed meaningless. There was a rich blue sky, and it was quiet except for the sound of the breeze and rustling grass. I felt completely content and happy. End quote. The next experience I have that features a lake is coming from a woman named Gail. Quote, I knew I was going to die. I couldn't scream, couldn't breathe. Right before I lost consciousness, I smelled something strange, very strange. After that, I was on a lake in a rowboat. I could see myself in the boat. I felt very calm, wasn't thinking about anything, just looking. It was very dark, but I could see the silhouette of purple on mountains when I looked to the side. It was beautiful and looked like the sun would rise very soon. The lake was very still. I wasn't afraid. Then I heard my mother and daughter's voice. But my daughter, who was only approximately two at the time, well, it was the sound of her voice grown up, but I knew it was her voice. They called my name 
and my body moved like through an air current very quickly. It was as if the wind carried me so fast, and I saw a bright, bright light very quickly, and then a beach. Then I saw my mom and daughter standing on the beach. My daughter was grown up. I came out of the unconsciousness. End quote. Okay, here is another experience featuring a lake that is coming from a woman named Mary. Quote, I opened my eyes to the most beautiful, brightly lit place. Green grass, a pond slash lake, trees, but this light eclipsed all. I looked around and realized I was sitting on a man's lap, who was dressed in white robes. He had dark hair. At first, I thought it was my deceased father in his younger years. Then I thought it was my first husband, who had passed on in 1981. Then I knew it was Jesus. He held me and comforted me. No words were spoken but the love and peace. Then I heard yelling from far away. It was my then-boyfriend calling for help. I woke up to little or no pain. End quote. Okay, so I have one more experience that I'm going to read, at least for now, and this is coming to us by way of a man named Graham. Quote, Racked with panic, my sight faded, sense of my body faded, sound faded, and then came the calm. I found myself disembodied, floating above a crystal clear lake. It was only small, the water shallow, with smooth stones about the size of a spread hand. Lush green foliage with small shiny leaves overhung the water. I was as conscious and able to think as I am here now writing this. Yet I was suffused with the peace that passes all understanding. This was something of a revelation to me and I didn't want to go back to the horrors of the HDU, end quote. Okay, so I think you can probably tell from these examples that I read that a certain pattern starts emerging after we've read several of them. There's a consistency in how this image of the lake appears. It seems to be a place of peace, of contentment, of overwhelming beauty that's indescribable. Many of the individuals that we read try to describe the, the trees and the breeze and the grass and all of this nature that has this sublime sort of beauty, mountains in the distance. And a lot of these individuals have different relations to where they are in reference to the lake. For instance, Graham is floating above it, and Gale is in the lake on a rowboat, and several of the others are on the shoreline. And so, like we often talk about, there are individual differences in how this image appears, but there's this general overall sort of consistency and meaning. Another pattern that we saw was that several of the NDEs also featured a person or a being that was at the lake, whether it was a spiritual presence or in the case of Mary, it was Jesus or a deceased loved one. 
several of them had people or, or certain beings that appeared there at the lake, which is right in line with what we tend to see in other near-death experiences. So here is where we can start to bring in some of those themes which I had discussed earlier, this idea of the lake being associated with deity or with the afterlife, the place where the dead or the souls of the dead reside. And so it's not entirely, let's say, distinct from other NDEs where people see deceased loved ones or a being of light or some religious figure such as Christ. But it seems as though the lake is emphasized in these experiences. And what I mean by that is most of the individuals go to such lengths to try to describe the sense of beauty and peace that comes from the lake and just being in this particular setting that it's really the feature in many ways of of these experiences. So all of this starts to raise the question of why a lake? Of all the things that could have been represented, why would it be a lake? Now there's this usual cop-out answer that we tend to give in these situations where say, oh, well, they probably loved going to the lake or they grew up living by a lake. But we don't have any evidence that that's the case. And this seems to be a common enough setting, an image that appears in what would probably be the most important experience of someone's life, seeing something when they're at the brink of death. And yet, here we have this particular image appearing again and again. Not only that, but it's also appearing with the same sort of consistent, coherent meaning, albeit with individual variations. And as I often say in these episodes, this image, this experience, is emerging from the unconscious. And I don't mean that in some sort of spooky, new age, metaphysical way, but the experience is not consciously created by each of these individuals, unless there's something they're not telling us that at, you know, whenever they had their accident or were about to lose consciousness, thought, oh, I really want to go to a lake. Now, if that's the case, then. There is some explanation there. But based on their own self-reporting, we don't have that to go on. And so the only assumption that we can make is that this particular image, this particular place, appears unconsciously. They just find themselves in it. It's autonomous. It's almost a fact of nature. That's how the experience presents itself. It has a life of its own in a way, and it happens to the person. And of course, it bears some connection with the individual's beliefs and religion and things that they believe in, loved ones that have passed on, has a very personal sort of connection. But there's also this layer that has a deeper, let's say, human level meaning that perhaps we can learn from. 
And that's where we're going to bring in some Jungian psychology and techniques in order to try to flesh out what that universal meaning might be, what could be expressed by this image of the lake. And to do that, we're going to draw on some of the methods that we have used in previous episodes. We're going to use this technique called amplification. That is, finding different examples of this image in the cultural productions of mankind throughout time, throughout history. How has the lake appeared to us? And what have been our thoughts about it? What have been our beliefs and superstitions around the lake? And this technique of amplification is running and functioning based on the same assumption that we're having to use when examining this NDE imagery. That assumption is that these squishy things that we have such a hard time dealing with, such as beliefs and feelings and attitudes and you know, folklore and mythology, stories, these sort of things are not necessarily made up, but there is an element of them that is objective in that it happens to the individual. Just as a dream happens to a single person, a, a myth or stories or folklore might be the dream of a, of a culture, of a society. And so there's an element to it that happens objectively to mankind. Now, of course, religious ideas and spiritual ideas and rituals and traditions and myths can all be created. They can all be developed over time. They can be even made up, but they will not last and they will not have any staying power unless they have an underlying level of truth and not truth in the literal way that we usually prefer. When people take religious stories literally and try to base their proof on that level of analysis, it usually doesn't end up going too well. But if we look at religious stories and myths as reflecting the structures of our psyche and human patterns of understanding and living and being, then we can have an objective basis by which to evaluate and compare what we think of as very subjective inner individual experiences because they do have an underlying objective foundation in the spontaneous and autonomous functioning of our psyche, both individually and collectively. So that is going to be the basis of our exploration of the symbolism of the lake. And there's something I like to do when starting out looking at a particular image, and that is to look at the etymology of the word that we use to that we assign to this particular image. So where does the word lake come from? Because usually there's some deeper levels of meaning that get lost over time. And when we look at the origin of the word, that there's sort of a substrata of different associations that we can make and build upon as a good foundation to begin our discussion. So I'm going to read the etymology of the word lake and how we we got the word and what some of its roots were. Quote, Lake, body of water surrounded by land and filling a depression or basin, 
early 12th century, from Old French, lac, and directly from Latin, lacus, pond, pool, lake, also basin, tank, reservoir, related to lacuna, hole, pit, from Proto-Indo-European, laku, body of water, lake, sea, also source of Greek lakos, pit, tank, pond, Old Church Slavonic, loki, pool, puddle, cistern, Old Irish, loch, lake, pond, the common notion is basin. There was a Germanic form of the Proto-Indo-European root, which yielded Old Norse, loger, sea flood, water. Old English, laku, stream, pool, pond, lagu, sea flood, water, extent of the sea, lekan, to moisten, see leak. In Middle English, lake, as a descendant of the Old English word, also could mean stream, river gully, ditch, marsh, grave, pit of hell, and this might have influenced the form of the borrowed word. End quote. Okay, so I think this is a perfect example of how etymology and the history of a word can be useful in finding some of those hidden meanings, those deeper roots. In this case, it has some of the meanings that we've come to expect with the word lake, such as a body of water, a pool, a puddle, uh, even the sea, or a sea flood, or just water in general. But then we also have these other meanings that actually line up quite well with what we've discussed so far, such as a hole, or a pit, or the grave. And right there we have one of the themes that we've already brought up, the identification of the lake with the grave, or the afterlife, or where the dead or the souls of the dead reside. And so right there in the very word, that's so fascinating that there is an association already there in one of the many variations of the roots of this word. But as I mentioned previously, there was something there in this image, this the idea of a lake that associated itself autonomously with the idea of the underworld or the, the grave, and even in the minds of our ancestors, that there was some connection there. And I don't think that connection was by chance. I think it, it represents something within the human psyche. And I think all of the various examples that we're going to talk about will show that that there's something deep about this particular symbol that resonates with us. But before getting into all of the different variations of how mankind has related to this image of the lake, I thought it might be useful to talk about what that psychological meaning might be. And to do that, I'm going to read a couple different passages from Jung and other Jungian analysts, as well as from Mercia Eliade, the historian of religion. And I think it will be a solid basis for us to then go further afield and see how that meaning plays out in action in people's traditions and rituals and beliefs. So to start out, I'm going to read a quick quote from Mysterium Conjunctionis, which is Jung's work on alchemy. And in this little passage, he was talking about alchemical operations 
and happen to talk about what water and its manifestations can represent in the psyche. Quote, But consciousness is confronted by the objective fact of the unconscious, often enough an avenging deluge. Water in all its forms, sea, lake, river, spring, is one of the commonest typifications of the unconscious, as is also the lunar femininity that is closely associated with water. End quote. Okay, so in that passage, Jung was drawing a line of comparison, a line of connection between the patterns that he has seen in the dreams of his patients over decades as a psychologist and old alchemical speculations and hermetic philosophy that he was reading in these old books, that there was a sort of common symbolism that emerged, which only strengthened his notion that perhaps there was a deeper meaning, that there was something collective about these unconscious symbols. So they sort of went hand in hand and they informed one another that he got clues into what his patient's dreams might mean based on mankind's symbolic speculations about certain ideas or or images, such as a lake. And vice versa, his research into his patient's dreams often revealed that they shared that core of meaning. So in that way, the mythology surrounding a particular symbol allowed the clue or the hint to understand a patient's dreams, and then the improvement and the healing of the patient through that means only served to further strengthen the importance of mythology and the collective basis of our psychology and its roots in history. Okay, so now I'm going to be reading a passage from Jung's work, which is called Ion. And in this passage, he is going to be discussing different symbols and forms that the self can take. That's self with the capital S. And that was Jung's term that represented the totality of the psyche, the total combination of ego and unconscious, or our small field of experience and then the unconscious within us. That's something that we've talked about in previous episodes. So keep in mind when he says the self, that is what he's referring to. It's the totality of the psyche, including our consciousness and unconscious. This is a passage from Ion. Quote, Thus the self can appear in all shapes, from the highest to the lowest, insomuch as these transcend the scope of the ego personality in the manner of a daimonium. It goes without saying that the self also has its theriomorphic symbolism. The commonest of these images in modern dreams are, in my experience, the elephant, horse, bull, bear, white and black birds, fishes, and snakes. Occasionally one comes across tortoises, snails, spiders, and beetles. The principal plant symbols are the flower and the tree. Of the inorganic products, the commonest are the mountain and lake. End quote. Okay, so in that passage, he goes through a lot of different forms that the self can take, and at the very end mentions one of the inorganic, non-living forms that it can take is the form of a lake. 
And I'm sure at this point you're going, well, this all sounds cool and all, and it, you know, it's interesting, but it, it's not really provable, is it? It's kind of ambiguous, and there's, there's nothing you can really hold on to. And you'd be right. I mean, it's not scientifically provable, and it is ambiguous. But that's because we're dealing with something that has to do with human beings, and we are ambiguous. So there's no getting around that. And this whole episode, I will attempt to show that this symbolism of the lake as the psyche or the totality of the psyche or the unconscious is how it appears to mankind objectively. And throughout our history, that is how it has appeared to us as the underworld, the land of the dead, the home of a deity, or the pit of hell, or the lake of fire. And what does that mean for us, for you and me? Perhaps we can see that within our own dreams, within our own psyches. And if we can recognize that, we can relate to it. But I think it's important to keep in mind that the form in which a symbol takes is going to determine how we relate to it and the meaning that we can gather from it in our own particular circumstance. It's like I said, things are ambiguous within us and we each have a different relation to a living psyche within us. And so if the C represents the unconscious, how is that different from a lake representing the unconscious? Well, to answer that, we have to look at the form that each of these symbols take. For instance, the sea is often thought of as boundless, endless, infinite. Even in, it, in mythological ideas regarding the sea, it's unbounded. It's the edge of the world. There's, there's nothing beyond it. And so that would be an aspect that the psyche could take. And we've even seen that in other near-death experiences, other episodes that we've done. But a lake is a little more local. You can walk around the lake. You can get in touch with the lake. You can swim across the lake. And so the form that this particular symbol takes in the form of a lake as opposed to the sea can determine how we, we interact with it. To be able to visualize the totality of the psyche as a lake, that is something that is much more accessible it's something that we can relate to in a much more human way. It's closer to the human realm, so to speak. It's not infinite. It's not boundless. It's quite bounded. We can actually walk around it and even understand it in a way. And so this is the way that particular symbolism can bring out different aspects of a living relationship to something within us. And as such, I think it's important to point out that a certain symbol is never settled. It's constantly under development, and it grows, and it wanes, and it waxes. And I think that's important to point out that it's not set in stone, but is rather a living dynamic to flesh out some of the religious aspects and spiritual ideas surrounding water, I wanted to 
read from a book called Patterns in Comparative Religion by Mercia Eliad, who, as I mentioned, was a professor of the history of religion. And I think this will show what we've been talking about a little more clearly in a historical and religious context. Quote, Water flows. It is living. It moves. It inspires. It heals. It prophesizes. By their very nature, spring and river display power, life, perpetual renewal. They are, and they are alive. Thus they have a certain autonomy, and their worship persists in spite of other epiphanies and other religious revolutions. Each continues always to reveal the sacred force that is peculiarly its own and at the same time shares in the prerogatives of water as such. The cult of water, and particularly of springs held to be curative, hot springs, salt springs, and so on, displays a striking continuity. No religious revolution has ever put a stop to it. Fed by popular devotion, the cult of water came to be tolerated even by Christianity, after the fruitless persecuting of it in the Middle Ages. The reaction began in the 4th century with St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Ecclesiastical prohibitions were made over and over again from the Second Council of Arles, 443 or 452, until the Council of Treves in 1227. In addition, a considerable number of polemics, pastoral letters, and other documents mark out for us the struggle made by the church against the cult of water. In some cases, the cult seems to have lasted from the Neolithic age until the present day. In the hot spring of Grissy, in the commune of St. Symphorien de Marmagne, for instance, Neolithic and Roman ex votos can be found. Similar traces of Neolithic worship, Silex is broken to show they were ex votos, were found in the spring now called Saint Saviour. Rooted in prehistory, the cult was passed down to the Gauls and later the Roman Gauls, whence it was taken up and assimilated by Christianity. At Saint Moritz, until quite lately, there still stood ancient remains dating from the worship of the Bronze Age. In the commune of Bertinoro, Religious remains from the Bronze Age are to be found near a modern well of chlorosaline water. In England, springs near some of the prehistoric barrows and megalithic monuments are held by the local inhabitants to be miraculous and beneficent. And finally, I think I should recall the ritual that took place at the Lake of St. Andale in the Aubrac Mountains, described by St. Gregory of Tours. AD 544-95. The men came in their carts and feasted for three days by the lakeside, bringing as offerings linen, fragments of clothing, woolen thread, cheese, cakes, and so on. On the fourth day, there was a ritual storm with rain. Clearly, it was a primitive rite to induce rain. A priest, Parthenius, having in vain tried to convince the peasants to give up this pagan ceremonial, built a church to which the men eventually brought the offerings intended for the lake. However, the custom of throwing cakes and worn-out things into the lake remained alive till the 19th century. 
Pilgrims continued to throw shirts and trousers into the lake, though they did not really know what their object was in doing so. End quote. Okay. So, there were some really interesting things in that passage by Mercia Eliot that I wanted to point out. First off, he starts by saying the sacred is autonomous, that what we find sacred, what we find captivating, what we find worthy of awe and worthy of worship almost has a life of its own, that it strikes us objectively, as we've alluded to in psychological terms, but here he is talking strictly about the religious experience and the divine as it manifests to man. And in this context, he was referring to the divinity of water or the, I guess, sacred nature of water that has apparently based on our records and artifacts and archaeological data been with man for quite a long time. He even mentions evidence of worship of springs and certain water sites that could stretch back to the Neolithic which presumably could be 12,000 years ago. He talks about the discovery of Neolithic and Roman ex-votos, which are offerings that are left for the gods that have provided evidence for a cult of water, she calls it, that stretches way back into our history. And he also describes all the efforts of uh, (laughs) priests and pastors to try and stop the worship of these springs and these water sites through uh, even the Christian era and how they attempted to put a stop to these traditions, these rituals, but were unsuccessful, which shows that they have a certain stain power, regardless of the religious dogmatic authority at the time. And that suggests that when he talks about how the sacred grips us and, and has an autonomy, that it There's evidence to support that, and that lines up perfectly with some of the things that Jung has talked about in the way that the psyche presents itself to mankind objectively. And he even mentions a a particular, I guess, historical fact of a certain tradition that took place at a lake. The local people would feast and stay by the lakeside and throw certain offerings into the lake of clothes and sounds like food until a priest wanted to put a stop to it and built a church by the lake so the offerings could go there. But the tradition continued despite the, <laughs> the reorientation of the ritual towards a Christian context and that people continued to throw certain garments and cakes into the lake. And so that's it's just a... It shows how this symbolism is very real to us and something that we enact and we, we live. And sometimes we don't understand why we do it, but that doesn't mean it's not meaningful. In connection with this, a listener of the show named Jane sent me a paper that she found by an anthropologist who was describing the practice of people in Ireland who would visit sacred wells and springs that may have originally had pagan context but grew to be associated with particular 
saints and cures of certain ailments that they would perform a folk liturgy and stop at multiple stations and make prayers. And so it's almost the same thing that we were discussing in the case of what Eliad presented, that ancient pagan cult of water type of practices became Christianized and continued in a new paradigm. I want to read a couple paragraphs from this paper because not only does it emphasize the archetypal basis of what we're dealing with, but as the paper itself mentions, these sacred places can include lakes and ponds. So it ties directly in with the purpose of this episode. The name of this paper is Paying the Rounds at Ireland's Holy Wells, and it's by the author Celeste Ray, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of the South in Tennessee. Quote, A holy well is a water source, most often a spring, but sometimes a pond or an entire lake, which is a site of religious devotion. In Ireland, these sacred sites are commonly dedicated to a saint, and their waters can be blessed with, quote, a cure for particular ailments. Our daily physical need for water has fostered panhuman hydrolatry. Sacred wells and springs can be found around the globe. In Australia, Aboriginal ancestors are still greeted at water holes they created in dream time. Mexico has its holy water aguajes and Mayan cenotes. Haiti has the healing pilgrimage waterfall at Soto. Mami Wata has become the generalized name for healing spirits who inhabit a variety of water bodies in Niger and Nigeria. Shinto Kami spirits dwell in Japanese springs, and Zamzam at Mecca is the holiest well in Islam, visited by millions annually on the Hajj. As Eliad noted, quote, Water symbolizes the whole of potentiality. It is fawns at origo, the source of all possible existence. End quote. The first people to reach Ireland during the Mesolithic surely venerated water sources, and Christina Fredingren argues that lithic materials and human remains deposited in Irish lakes in this period may have been votives. Gabriel Cooney suggests that Neolithic votive deposition of human remains, pottery, and stone axes in Irish bogs, coastal wetlands, and rivers may be associated with the veneration of ancestral spirits. Iron Age votives have been found at holy wells in current use, such as St. Anne's Well at Randallstown, County Meath. The Irish sacred water tradition entered Christian practice from a previous and long-lived existence and is a legacy of the syncretism that shaped indigenous visions of Christianity. Early Christian missionaries taught where people already worshipped and folded pagan places of pilgrimage, including holy wells and trees, into the new faith. Hallowed sites and people's desire to access their supernatural power through votive gifts continued in perpetuity, although the definition of the supernatural evolved. Sacred places remained numinous and charismatic. Only the presiding spirit became instead an intercessor with the divine. While such sites of natural sacrality are also common elsewhere in the world, Ireland is unusual in Europe 
in retaining Holywell visitation as a regular part of Catholic parish life. And now skipping ahead a bit, quote, Holy Wells might be a part of larger pilgrimage sites or may be the focus of their own sacral landscapes. A well's physical context might be studded with other thaumaturgical features. Proper visitation of a well may require preliminary movement around these, quote, stations, with the recitation of a set number of prayers in a prescribed order unique to the site. While individual prayer is usually considered non-liturgical, individuals rounding the stations are performing a folk liturgy. Praying at each station and then at the well, or saying one set of prescribed prayers while circumambulating the well, constitutes one round. A single round might suffice for those engaging in meditative prayer or as a daily spiritual exercise, but for those praying with an intention, or specific petition, multiple rounds might be required, often in sets of three, six, or nine. Doing or paying the rounds, sometimes called performing the stations, can take hours, but may be fulfilled in part on successive shorter visits, around each Sunday or Thursday for three weeks, for example. The, quote, payment of prayers may be offered to the well's presiding saint, for interceding on the supplicant's behalf or directly to God. Approach to the well itself might occur in the middle of rounding, but it is commonly the culmination of these syncretic folk liturgies. Devotees may then drink the water, often in three sips, or dip their fingers in the water and bless themselves by making the sign of the cross, flicking water around their bodies three times in the name of the Trinity or anointing an ailing portion of the body. If, after performing the rounds, one sees a fish, a trout in some, a salmon in others, or occasionally an eel, one's request will be answered. The rounding process may also be called the pattern, and the course one follows between stations is called in Irish anturas, which means the journey or pilgrimage so that even those praying the rounds at their local holy well refer to their actions as pilgrimage. End quote. Thank you very much to Jane for sending me that paper. And it was completely coincidental that it happened to line up just perfectly with the passage that I read from Eliad. And this paper even referenced Eliad in talking about the idea of water being the source of all potentiality of all existence. And that is a archetypal idea that goes very deep into who we are as human beings. Now, the paper talks about perhaps the worship of water being connected to the fact that we need it to survive, which is absolutely true and I think is a good hypothesis. But I also happen to think that these numinous sacred experiences are not so, I don't know, contrived on the basis of the fact that we need water to live, but experienced as autonomous religious experiences. And I think that view of them as being part of our psyche and our makeup is evidenced by the fact that worship of wells and springs and lakes and ponds 
can continue into even Christian Catholic practices, although they aren't officially sanctioned by the church, but they exist as a kind of folk liturgy, as the paper mentions. So there's something so meaningful about these traditions surrounding wells and springs and lakes that they can survive from a pagan context all the way up to the modern day in a Catholic setting. And that is why I want to go to such lengths to try to understand how deep the symbolism of water goes into who we are. For instance, the idea of water being sacred or divine, or something worthy of being worshipped, the substance out of which everything else emerged, that idea is at the very heart of Western science and philosophy. One of the most important pre-Socratic Greek philosophers was Thales, and he is considered by some to be the forefather of all Western scientific and rational philosophy. He hypothesized that the originating principle out of which all matter and nature and substance emerged was water. And just as we used etymology to look at the deeper levels of meaning in a word that we may have lost over time and thus get a broader idea of what a certain word can mean, I think the same principle applies a little bit in how we got to where we are, what are the roots of the things we believe today. And it's incredibly ironic and poignant, I'd say, that our dry and materialistic scientific philosophy can trace its roots back to a almost religious principle that was posited by Thales, that water is the source, the animating principle behind all things. And that same idea is what is at play in these examples that we've discussed so far, of the worship of springs, of lakes, of even perhaps the idea of baptism in a Christian context. It's all having to do with the sacrality of water. And that divine experience continues up to the present day in people's NDEs when they perhaps find themselves at a lake or another body of water. And so the consistency of this imagery and this symbolism, I think, is worth exploring and talking about. Okay, so perhaps the lake is the unconscious. Perhaps the lake is the self. Perhaps the lake is the resting place of the souls of the deceased. Perhaps the lake is hell or heaven or the home of a god or goddess. We have all these different meanings that we're going to keep in our back pocket as we move forward and look at different examples of how the symbolism has expressed itself throughout history and different cultures and societies around the world. So to start out, when I knew I was going to be doing an episode on lake symbolism, there was this little, little fact hiding in the back of my brain that suddenly came to light. And I remembered that the process for choosing the next Dalai Lama in Tibetan Buddhist tradition had something to do with a lake or meditating by a lake or receiving wisdom from a lake so that the Dalai Lama's reincarnation could be found. 
sure enough, I looked into it and that proved to be the case, although with much greater detail. So I just wanted to read to you a little bit about the Dalai Lama and his role and the tradition and the process of choosing the Dalai Lama. And so we can begin our exploration of how this symbolism manifests. This is coming from the Wikipedia entries on these topics. Quote, Dalai Lama is a title given by the Tibetan people to the foremost spiritual leader of the Jelug or Yellow Hat School of Tibetan Buddhism, the newest of the classical schools of Tibetan Buddhism. The 14th and current Dalai Lama is Tenzin Gyatso, who lives as a refugee in India. The Dalai Lama is also considered to be the successor in a line of tulkus, who are believed to be incarnations of Avalokitesvara, a bodhisattva of compassion. End quote. Okay, so as we start out, I just want to emphasize that with this episode, as in many previous episodes, in talking about some of these historical cultural examples, I am very limited in my scope and capabilities of fully you know, describing or explaining or even talking about these cultures. They're so rich and have so many details that not only would it take forever to fully explain them, talk about them, but also I'm not, I, I don't have the proper understanding to give them their full context. And so I'm very limited in what I'm able to present because there is so much nuance and context and history and culture that just go beyond the scope of what we're able to talk about in this episode. Okay, so with that little disclaimer out of the way, let's get more into this discussion of the Dalai Lama and his association with the lake. So Dalai Lama is a spiritual and political leader in Tibet, and Tibetan Buddhism, the Jelug school of Tibetan Buddhism. And he may be a incarnation of a particular bodhisattva. And there is, it seems though there are multiple meanings for this word bodhisattva. It can be somebody who is committed to the path of Buddhahood. So anybody could be a bodhisattva if they took the vow. But it also could be certain semi-mythical or mythical beings that are almost akin to guides or angels that have a certain spiritual aspect to them, I would venture to say. And as far as I can tell, it sounds as though the Avalokitesvara, this bodhisattva, which the Dalai Lama is an incarnation of, is of this latter category of a sort of semi-mythical figure which represents the compassion of all the Buddhas. So it sounds to me as though this history and this connection roots the title and position of Dalai Lama in with a apparently divine kind of lineage. Quote, In Central Asian Buddhist countries, it has been widely believed for the last millennium that Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, has a special relationship with the people of Tibet and intervenes in their fate by incarnating as benevolent rulers and teachers such as the Dalai Lamas. This is according to the Book of Kadam, the main text of the Kadampa school, to which the first Dalai Lama, Jidin Drupa, 
first belonged. In fact, this text is said to have laid the foundation for the Tibetans' later identification of the Dalai Lamas as incarnations of Avalokitsvara. It traces the legend of the Bodhisattva's incarnations as early Tibetan kings and emperors, such as Songsen Gampo, and later as Jontompa, 1004 AD to 1064. This lineage has been extrapolated by Tibetans up to and including the Dalai Lamas. End quote. Okay, so I hope that serves to at least paint a rough picture of this lineage of this particular bodhisattva and how it emanated into particular incarnations from kings and emperors in Tibet into this lineage of Dalai Lamas. Now, the first Dalai Lama, Jindan Drupa, was a monk who uh, attained a certain level of prominence and mastery in this Jelug school, this Jelug tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And he lived from 1391 to 1474, and only posthumously did he come to be known as the first Dalai Lama. It was about a hundred years after he died that he was referred to by that title. And it sounds as though that after his death, they didn't want to start a whole search for reincarnations, a tolka system, from what I understand, is the reincarnations forming the line of succession of this particular title. But sure enough, I think around 50 years later, a uh, young boy started saying things which identified him with this figure of the first Dalai Lama. The monastic authorities found this boy convincing as the reincarnation of the first Dalai Lama, and so they renamed him Jindan Gyatso, and he then became the second Dalai Lama. So I'm telling you this whole process so we can get a bit of context as we move into this relationship with the lake. Now, the second Dalai Lama, Jindan Gyatso, was known for having built a monastery near a particular lake that was called Lamo Latso. Quote, In 1509, he moved to southern Tibet to build Chokogayo Monastery near Oracle Lake, Lamo Latso, completing it by 1511. That year, he saw visions in the lake and empowered it to impart clues to help identify incarnate lamas. All Dalai Lamas from the third on were found with the help of such visions granted to regents. End quote. Okay, so that's a little introduction to what we're going to be talking about. I want to read more about this Oracle Lake, but first I just want to emphasize what we're going to be focusing on in looking at this particular example. We are going to be trying to identify patterns of meaning and what this image might represent when we encounter it, whether that's an NDE or in our own personal psychic experience. And so one of the aforementioned themes that I want you to keep in mind as we talk about this is the lake as the place where a god or goddess manifests on earth, because this lake is intimately related with the inspiration and maintenance of an entire lineage of spiritual teachers in a particular culture, that of Tibet. And as such, I think that 
might indicate that there's a deeper significance to what the lake might mean. Quote, Lamo Lazzo is a small oval oracle lake where senior Tibetan monks of the Jelug sect go for visions to assist in the discovery of reincarnations of the Dalai Lamas. Other pilgrims also come to seek visions. It is considered to be the most sacred lake in Tibet. It is also known as the spiritual lake of the goddess, the goddess being Paldin Lamo, the principal protectress of Tibet. It is said that Paldin Lamo, as the female guardian spirit of the Lamo Lazo, promised the first Dalai Lama in one of his visions, quote, that she would protect the reincarnation lineage of the Dalai Lamas, end quote. Ever since the time of the second Dalai Lama, who formalized the system, the regents and other monks have gone to the lake to seek guidance on choosing the next reincarnation through visions while meditating there. The particular form of Paldin Lamo at Lamo Lazzo is Jimmo Maxoma, the victorious queen who turns back enemies. The lake is sometimes referred to as Paldin Lamo Kalideva, which indicates that she is the Buddhist emanation of Kali, Shakti of Shiva. Jimo Maxoma is an unusually peaceful form of Paldin Lamo. It was here that in 1935, the regent, Ritting Rinpoche, received a clear vision of three Tibetan letters and of a monastery with a jade green and gold roof and a house with turquoise roof tiles, which led to the discovery of Tenzin Gyatso, the present 14th Dalai Lama. Many pilgrims come each year to Lamo Lazzo, believing that, with proper devoutness and after fasting for three days and refraining from talk, they will be rewarded with the revelation of their future in the skull-shaped mirror of the lake. There is a kora, a circumambulatory pilgrimage around Lamo Lazzo. End quote. Okay, so this is one of the first cultural, historical data points that we're using to try to amplify the symbol of the lake. And there's an interesting pattern that I think we can start to see after reading about this oracle lake. If you'll remember back to Cleo's near-death experience, she goes to a church to petition the Virgin Mary to give her a vision so she can find some solace in the grief she's feeling over the loss of her child. And that's granted, and she receives a vision of a lake. But in this case, the monks and regents of the Jelug sect of Tibetan Buddhism are actually physically going to a lake to petition a particular goddess that resides there to try to find the reincarnation of the next Dalai Lama. And apparently not only monks are permitted to do this, but pilgrims visit this lake to walk around it and gain visions of the future, which is a very interesting enacted sort of symbolism. And this even seems to be the same type of idea that was at play in the paper we read about the worship of holy water sources in Ireland by Catholic parishioners. They even consider themselves pilgrims, and they would walk around through several stations and circumambulate around a holy well or water source. 
to walk around something is to fully grasp it, to fully understand it, to see it from every angle, and also shows a kind of humility. It shows that the lake is a center and we are the periphery. To walk around something shows that it has importance and is sacred. It shows that it is the center and we revolve around it. And perhaps as that reading suggests, if one is humble enough and takes the appropriate steps of fasting and uh, refraining from talking, then one is granted some wisdom from this sacred center. The ritual Kora pilgrimage also goes hand in hand with some of the symbolism of the lake that we were discussing earlier. The fact that it is accessible, that one can walk around it, that one can interact with it in a way that the symbolism of the ocean or the sea does not allow. And while we're on the topic of the Kora and the pilgrimage to Lamo Lazzo, I wanted to bring up an idea, I guess, that I have mentioned a couple times in previous episodes, and that is the idea of a psychogeography, or certain places where one can interact in a more intimate manner with one's own psyche. Now, to frame it that way sounds grossly secular in a way, perhaps even blasphemous, because I think the places where this term might apply are considered to be sacred by many people. And for some cultures in particular, and maybe not others, but I don't want to take away from that in any way by trying to frame it in a psychological lens. Rather, I think that this could be a way to bring a secular, material, rationalistic sort of thinking back to a sense of the sacred and a a natural sense of divinity in certain places. If we can grant the, let's say, autonomy of psychological processes and their experiences. Of course, it probably would not work if you didn't have the requisite cultural beliefs and religious beliefs that are required for a particular site to have a effect on you. But I think it can be a useful way of understanding what might be going on when people have strange experiences at sacred locations. I think we can see this idea in what's going on at the Oracle Lake in this Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But let me give you another example. I found this passage in a book on shamanism by Mercia Eliot that I thought was very interesting in how it expressed this idea. He's talking about the process that goes on for choosing the next shaman in a particular Eskimo tribe and the initiation that the novice must go through. Quote, Among the Amasalic Eskimo, the disciple does not go to the old Angakuk to be initiated. The shaman himself chooses the candidate in his early childhood. From among the boys from six to eight, the shaman selects those whom he considers gifted for initiation, quote, in order that a knowledge of the highest powers in existence may be preserved for the coming generation, end quote. Only certain especially gifted souls, dreamers, visionaries of hysterical temperament can be chosen. An old Angakuk finds a pupil 
and the teaching is conducted in deepest secrecy, far from the hut in the mountains. The Angakuk teaches him to isolate himself in a lonely place, beside an old grave by a lake, and there to rub two stones together while waiting for the significant event. Quote, Then the bear of the lake or the inland glacier will come out. He will devour all your flesh and make you a skeleton, and you will die. But you will recover your flesh, you will awaken, and your clothes will come rushing to you. End quote. Among the Labrador Eskimo, it is the great spirit himself, Tungarsoek, who appears in the form of a huge white bear and devours the aspirant. In western Greenland, when the spirit appears, the candidate remains, quote, dead for three days, end quote. Okay, so here we have a similar process that is going on at a physical location, a certain place by a lake or by an old grave, triggers an experience which transforms the individual, whether that's the initiate in the case of this shamanic practice or the pilgrim that goes to the Oracle Lake. Of course, there are tons of cultural differences and nuances that we could point out here between these two vastly different cultures, but that's not really the point. What I'm trying to express is just that there's a similar interaction going on in both cases between a specific geographical location or, or even a culturally significant location such as a gravesite of a presumably an important person who had died. But some interaction between the individual psyche of the person and this specific location triggers a experience which transforms and changes the individual. And in this case, we again have a lake and certain mythology that comes along with the experience that takes place at the lakeside in this case, being devoured by a polar bear or some being in the lake, which then leads to a rebirth as a shaman. So while this is spiritual, it's religious, it is cultural, it is also psychological, and that's something that we all share because there's no experience that is not mediated by the psyche. And perhaps there is a collective nature to that, that we all can register certain meanings that resonate within all of us. And while we're talking about psychogeography and in the context of a lake, before we leave Tibet and go to other locations, I wanted to mention that I found another sacred lake that is revered by four different religions in the Tibetan region by Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and a religion that seems to be local to Tibet called Bon. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I really just wanted to point out the name of the lake and its etymology. The lake is called Lake Manasarovar, and I'm going to read what this word Manasarovar means. Quote, The Sanskrit word Manasarovar is a combination of two Sanskrit words, manas, meaning mind, in its widest sense as applied to all mental powers, intellect, intelligence, 
understanding, perception, sense, conscience. While Saravara means a lake or large pond. End quote. Okay, so I just wanted to emphasize this lake alongside Lamo Latso because its name contains a very archetypal idea which we are starting to flesh out with some real-world examples. The fact that the name of this lake, Manasarovar, means a mind lake, essentially. Uh, it means mind, intelligence. It's starting to weave this idea or give credence to this idea that the lake could represent a repository of intelligence or mind or the unconscious or a repository of wisdom. And that is something we see reflected in the fact that Lamo Latso contains a goddess which grants visions that <laughs> allow the next Dalai Lama to be found or visions of the future or just general wisdom. So perhaps the lake is symbolic of some of these attributes. There's nothing actually in the lake that contains wisdom or, or any of this stuff, but it, it carries the projection that we have within us and the interaction with the lake through this particular religious or cultural framework allows access to the deeper layers of the psyche and it can take a very particular form such as that of a goddess. And I thought it was fascinating that the lake and the goddess are engaged with for the purposes of divination or as an oracle. I had come across this idea of water being used for divination in a book by Marie-Louise von Franz, who was a Jungian analyst and is one of my favorite authors. Her book was called Projection and Recollection in Jungian Psychology. And I just wanted to read a few paragraphs from one of the chapters to try to substantiate this idea of an association between water and divination especially as we see it in the context of Lamo Lazzo. Quote, The great gods with knowledge of the future, Nereus, Proteus, Thetis, and in the Germanic tradition, Mimir, are all water divinities. In the water one can see one's own shadow, one's doppelganger, one's soul image, separate and objective, and also the disembodied outlines of the dead and of gods. The custom of obtaining secret information by staring into a vessel of water, the so-called hydromantia, is therefore practiced throughout the world. In the Middle Ages, in our own cultural tradition, burning candles were placed around a circular vessel filled with water, and the demon was evoked. The spirit answered with images on the water's surface. In ancient Patras, Greece, a form of magic was practiced that combined both mirror and reflecting water. A mirror attached to a thread was lowered into a well to the water's surface, and its reflection indicated whether a sick person would recover or die. In Lycian Kianai, on the other hand, the same thing was seen directly in the reflecting surface of the water of the well. In European folk magic, the use of a, quote, earth mirror was widespread. A box was filled with earth, a glass disc was laid on it, and this disc reflected what was sought. 
In some places, the magic power was imparted to the mirror by leaving the disc for three days and three nights on the face of the buried corpse of a woman who had died in childbirth. The association of earth and death with the prophetic powers of water and mirror is especially important in this connection. In Virgil, Aeneas receives the final prophecies just as he is about to descend through the lake of Avernus into the kingdom of the dead. Closely related to the water mirror is the dream oracle, which is also often sent by water divinities. The unceasing transformation of the dream images is like a subterranean current, whose gods can likewise change without cease. The symbolization of the unconscious by water with its mirror-like surface is of course based in the final analysis on a projection. Nevertheless, the analogies are astonishingly meaningful. Just as we cannot see into the depths of the waters, so the deeper areas of the unconscious are also invisible to us. We can draw only indirect conclusions about them. But on the surface, on the threshold area between consciousness and the unconscious, dream images appear spontaneously, not only seeming to give us information about the depths, but also mirroring our conscious personality, although not in identical form, but rather in a more or less altered form. The mirroring is always by way of the symbolic image that has a place in both worlds. End quote. Okay, so I love that passage because it gathers together all of these different examples of how we have throughout time and even in our own Western culture stared or gazed into the water and seen into ourselves. And that the water in these practices serves as a kind of mirror, although unconscious through contemplation and reflection and a humble disposition, people were able to gain some insight or to witness imagery reflected back on the surface of the water, the depths of the water that presumably gave them an answer that they were looking for. Gazing into the water like looking into a mirror or looking into a crystal was the hook for a projection of unconscious material that, like a waking dream, when viewed through a, the lens of a particular cultural context or a particular issue of what should I do, perhaps proved useful and became closely connected with the idea of prophetic water divinities that allowed access to this sort of knowledge, such as the deities that von Franz mentioned of Thetis and Proteus and Mimir, and then also in the case of Lamo Lazzo, the goddess Paulden Lamo that we talked about. The fact that this process appears in vastly different cultural contexts from European folk magic to Greek divination methods to the Tibetan technique for picking the next Dalai Lama, I think, suggests that we are dealing with a symbolic pattern that is endogenous and universal in the human psyche. In addition to this connection between water and divination in a psychological context, as we might see at Lamo Lazzo, we were also introduced to a, a different universal theme that I mentioned earlier, but we are going to explore in greater depth as well. 
And that is the idea of the lake as the entrance to the underworld, or the place where the souls of the dead reside, or the afterlife. Not only did we see this idea present in Cleo's near-death experience, in which souls were swimming around in a dark lake, and perhaps in the other NDEs that we read, but von Franz also mentions in the Aeneid that the entrance to the underworld was thought to be at the Lake of Avernus. I wanted to read a little bit from the Wikipedia of Lake Avernus so we can start to see the lake in a different context from that of the deity, but that of the underworld. Quote, Avernus was of major importance to the Romans, who considered it to be the entrance to Hades. Roman writers often used the name as a synonym for the underworld. In Virgil's Aeneid, Aeneas descends to the underworld through a cave near the lake. In Hyginus's Fabulae, Odysseus also goes to the lower world from this spot, where he meets Elpinor, his comrade who went missing at Circe's place. Despite the alleged dangers of the lake, the Romans were happy to settle its shores, on which villas and vineyards were established. The lake's personification, the Dios Avernus, was worshipped in lakeside temples. End quote. Okay, so here we have a direct link that we can draw between a lake and the underworld. The Romans even used this Lake Avernus as a synonym for the underworld. So here we have this idea of the lake symbolizing the land of the dead, at least in this particular Roman context. And I'd also like to further emphasize that they even had a deity that was associated with the lake, as the article mentioned, this Deus Avernus, this god of this particular lake that was worshipped in temples. So here in this case, we have at least two of the themes that I had previously mentioned organically emerging out of the ideas surrounding this Lake Avernus, the association with divinity or the divine, and also an association with the land of the dead. But in order to establish that what we're dealing with here is something that is truly a human universal that all people can partake in, and the symbolism has a broad cohesion of meaning, we need to look at other cultures and see whether this association can be maintained, or if it's similar, or if there's something there that we can add to this web of meaning that we're spinning around this central symbol of the lake. So to do so, we are going to hop over from Roman thought about Lake Avernus to some of the beliefs of native indigenous people of North America. I've been reading a fascinating book by the author Gregory Shushan on NDEs and indigenous religions, and in the chapter on the Zuni people of the American Southwest, there was a a really interesting connection between a lake and the realm of the dead and with spiritual beings known as kachinas. The NDE that Shushan mentions in his book is different than Zuni afterlife beliefs, but this gave me a starting point to do a bit more research and find out more about what the connection was between these kachinas and a lake. So I'm going to read a quick quote from this chapter. Quote, 
Furthermore, her experience was inconsistent with Zuni afterlife conceptions, in which the dead remain near the body for four days, change shape, become the wind, or enter the lake of the Kachinas. End quote. Okay, so just to follow that up, I want to read from the Wikipedia entry on Kachinas, just so we know what they are and then further explore their association with lakes. Quote, A Kachina is a spirit being in the religious beliefs of the Pueblo peoples, Native American cultures located in the southwestern part of the United States. In the Pueblo cultures, Kachina rites are practiced by the Hopi, Zuni, Hopi Tewa, and certain Caresan tribes, as well as in most Pueblo tribes in New Mexico. The Kachina concept has three different aspects, the supernatural being, the Kachina dancers, and the Kachina dolls, small dolls carved in the likeness of the Kachina that are given only to those who are or will be responsible for the respectful care and well-being of the doll, such as a mother, wife, or sister. Kachinas are spirits or personifications of things in the real world. These spirits are believed to visit the Hopi villages in the first half of the year. The local pantheon of Kachinas varies from Pueblo community to community. A Kachina can represent anything in the natural world or cosmos, from a revered ancestor to an element, a location, a quality, a natural phenomenon, or a concept. There may be Kachinas for the sun, stars, thunderstorms, wind, corn, insects, as well as many other concepts. Kachinas are understood as having human-like relationships, such as having uncles, sisters, and grandmothers, as well as marrying and having children. Although not worshipped, each is viewed as a powerful being who, if given veneration and respect, can use his particular power for human good, bringing rainfall, healing, fertility, or protection, for example. The central theme of Kachina beliefs and practices, as explained by Wright, 2008, is, quote, the presence of life in all objects that fill the universe. Everything has an essence or life force, and humans must interact with these or fail to survive. The Zuni believe that the Kachinas live in the Lake of the Dead, a mythical lake which is reached through Listening Spring Lake. This is located at the junction of the Zuni River and the Little Colorado River. End quote. Okay, so there's a lot here that I want to explore and get into. And I suppose the first place to start is with the Kachinas, which are a fascinating figure in, in the mythology of these southwestern peoples. They strike me in almost a platonic kind of way. They represent objects or ideas or natural phenomena. They are the ideas or spiritualized versions of objects and things we encounter in the real world. And in having that function, they can be interacted with, which gets into very interesting territory that I've sort of touched on in the episode on psyche and matter, where perhaps matter could have some panpsychic sort of life to it, and that seems to be the basis of their belief in these Kachina figures, that all objects and things have, have life in them. And that's actually an idea I've come across in other near-death experiences. 
presumably at some level there is a meeting point between psyche, experience, or spirit, and matter. And I don't know what that is, but this idea that matter might contain some dim luminosity or some low level of experience or life, I think is fascinating. At the very least, it affords a different kind of relationship with the world, that if the objects and material around you is animated or has life, it would require that you treat it with a different sort of level of respect or a different interaction than perhaps our usual materialist consumption that we would usually default to. It grants meaning to the world in a way. And it sounds as though like these Kachina figures were the means by which these indigenous people were able to interact with all the different objects and natural phenomena that they encountered in their world. And I love how they inhabited three different levels of reality in a way. That there was the Kachina beings themselves, which were spiritual beings, and then there were the Kachina dolls, which were objects, and then there were the people who, as dancers, acted out the Kachina, and where the human being, as both body and soul, was able to bring together those two different levels of reality, the material object and then the spiritualized being. The union of opposites took place in the human being in the act of a dance. And the article had mentioned that when the person had worn the costume of the Kachna, that it was believed that that individual really was the Kachna, that in acting that out, they became that being. So what does this have to do with our purposes for this episode? Well, the Kachinas were believed to live in a lake of the dead, which sounds as though it was a mythological lake that existed beneath a geographical lake, which is an interesting idea. But in addition to this, the Zuni believed that certain people, when they died, went into this lake of the dead as an afterlife. And that seems to be directly in line with at least the case of Cleo's near-death experience that we mentioned previously, and some of the other NDEs that we read as well. This particular image or symbol is functioning in an equivalent, coherent sort of way in vastly different cultural settings, which is really meaningful, I think. And I find it even more meaningful when perhaps we speculate on what it could mean for us personally in our own psychology. For instance, if Kachinas represent ideas or objects or natural phenomena that have existed for eons, then they might be akin to the idea of an archetype. And if they live in a lake, then perhaps the lake itself is akin to the collective unconscious. And from there, we can start to explore this relation between the lake and the realm of the dead and the collective unconscious, all being synonymous with one another. At the very least, all of our bodies and languages and cultural practices and religious beliefs 
have been passed on to us from our ancestors. And so I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that we contain the realm of the dead within us, since that is what brought us into being and what we're literally made of. And based on the observation of his patient's dreams, Jung supposed that not only were our bodies collectively built over millions and millions of years of evolution, but also the inner experience of those bodies, the psyche, would have a collective strata that stretched way back into the mists of time, into unconsciousness. To further get into this, I'm going to read a paragraph from Jung's memoirs called Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Quote, Shortly before this experience, I had written down a fantasy of my soul having flown away from me. This was a significant event. The soul, the anima, establishes the relationship to the unconscious. In a certain sense, this is also a relationship to the collectivity of the dead. For the unconscious corresponds to the mythic land of the dead, the land of the ancestors. If, therefore, one has a fantasy of the soul vanishing, this means that it is withdrawn into the unconscious or into the land of the dead. There it produces a mysterious animation and gives visible form to the ancestral traces, the collective contents. Like a medium, it gives the dead a chance to manifest themselves. Therefore, soon after the disappearance of my soul, quote, the dead appeared to me, and the result was the septum sermonis. This is an example of what is called loss of soul, a phenomenon encountered quite frequently among primitives. From that time on, the dead have become ever more distinct for me as the voices of the unanswered, unresolved, and unredeemed. For since the questions and demands which my destiny required me to answer did not come to me from outside. End quote. It strikes me more and more as I get into this topic that a good answer to the question of where do we go after we die might be the same place that we were before we were born. That is, unconsciousness. Now to most people that has a coldness to it, it's not a very good answer, but if we empirically experience within our own selves that the unconscious has a life of its own, that it has its own gravitas, its own force or will that we can interact with, then that starts to open up possibilities of what this state of being after death might be. Based on people's NDEs, it seems as though our consciousness is able to continue on into this landscape created by the unconscious, which takes a particular cultural or personal form, and perhaps even a universal form of particular religious or symbolic ideas. But in an NDE, someone always comes back. And so it's unclear whether we would continue to have a conscious separate existence or perhaps whether we would be reabsorbed into the unconscious totality once we crossed that line. But ultimately, that is a question that can only be answered by each of us individually 
on our own terms, in our own experience. And that is why we are doing this particular episode as a means of answering that question of what happens after we die, that perhaps our experience allows us to have more answers than we previously thought. Based on what we've discussed so far, the lake seems to be symbolic of the land of the dead, or the place where a deity resides. And perhaps this is also analogous to our own unconscious. Just to drive this point home, I wanted to share another fascinating example of this exact symbolism in action that I found in a particular lake and a particular culture in Africa. It's called Lake Fundutsi, and it is sacred to the Vinda people of South Africa. I'm going to be reading a significant portion of a chapter on the lake from a book called Sacred Places, Sites of Spiritual Pilgrimage from Stonehenge to Santiago de Compostela by the author Philip Cargom. And while I do, I'd like you to try and keep in mind some of the previous patterns and motifs that we've discussed so far, the idea of the lake being the realm of the dead, where the ancestors live, the realm of spirits, or the home of the gods, and try to keep an eye out for how these cultural practices and rituals emerge concordantly with this autonomous belief in the sacrality of the lake. Quote, Nestling in the lush and fertile terrain of the Limpopo province in northeastern South Africa is a lake and forest that even today has managed to resist the onslaught of tourism. The people of this region, the Vinda, hold Lake Fundutsi and the surrounding forest of Thatevondo in such great revere that visits may only be arranged by permit. In one of South Africa's least visited areas, just below the arc of the Great Limpopo River that marks the country's border with Botswana and Zimbabwe, lies Vinda, homeland of the Vavinda people, often known simply as the Vinda. This is a land of high mountains and peaceful valleys, dense forest and an abundance of clear water. To the north is the magnificent site of Great Zimbabwe, while the northwest, besides the Limpopo, contains the ruins of Mapungubwe, capital of a thriving medieval kingdom. Meanwhile, to the south, the Salpansberg Mountains guard the Vinda's most precious secrets. At the heart of the Vinda region lies the sacred Lake Fundutsi, which means, quote, place of learning, and the equally revered forest of Tatevondo. No one is allowed to bathe or swim in this lake, and access for visitors is strictly controlled and limited. If you are lucky enough to get anywhere near the lake, you will be asked by tribal guides not to look directly at it, but to honor the ancestors by facing away and bending down so that you can only see the lake upside down through the gap between your legs, or by turning your back to the lake, looking at it over your left shoulder and advancing backwards, as is the custom for any of the numerous holy places in southern Africa. Lake of the Ancestors and the Holy Forest Lake Fundutsi's great sanctity derives from the Vinda belief that it is the resting place of the Vadzimu, the gods, 
and the abode of water spirits, and humans who after death become fish that swim in the sacred waters. Some say that it is a zombie lake where buried ancestors come alive at night and play drums beneath the water. And when the water is clear, you can observe the inhabitants of a submerged village going about their daily business. Offerings of sorghum beer are often made to the ancestors by a supplicant attached to a rope, so that he can be quickly pulled out should the lake spirits try to capture him. Surrounding Lake Fundutsi is the Thate Vondo Forest. Although some of the land has been cleared for farmland and tea growing, the remaining forest is so thick it is almost impenetrable in many places. Within the forest is, quote, the holy forest, where the chiefs of the Thothe clan are buried. Few Vinda people dare approach this area, which is believed to be filled with spirits. A white lion, spirit of chief Nathothe, might be seen, or the lightning bird Nadadzi. You might also see Zwidudwane, creatures half-human and half-spirit, although just to see them means certain death. Offerings are sometimes left for them on a flat rock above Fafiti Waterfall in the forest. At night, the spirits can be heard taking the gifts down to the Guvukuvu pool at the foot of the waterfall. From the pool emerges the sounds of ghostly drumming and singing. The Crocodile Rock The Vinda also believed that a white crocodile once lived in Fundutsi. Crocodiles swallow stones to aid their digestion, perhaps in an attempt to possess the spirit of the albino crocodile and acquire its strength. Vinda chiefs observe a tradition of swallowing a small white rock, which is passed down through the generations in a highly unusual way. When a chief dies, his body is placed on a wooden platform and allowed to decompose. Once the flesh has fallen from the bones, the white rock that he swallowed is retrieved and swallowed by the new chief. To prevent theft of the rock or it being swallowed by the wrong candidate, the body is guarded by women. The lake is still home to crocodiles and according to Vinda belief, a giant python god of fertility who is honored in the Domba dance, which forms a major part of the initiation rites for young Vinda women. In the center of the village clearing, a ritual fire is lit by the medicine man. The master of ceremonies then calls out, the python uncoils, and the thirty or more female initiates, wearing only brief loincloths, sing ritual songs and dance a conga, imitating the movement of the python god. The ceremony is dedicated to the evening star Naledi, that is, Venus. End quote. Okay, so there's a lot there, but I hope that it is apparent that this imagery is very much alive and active, whether we are conscious of it or not. As you can tell by the comparison to some of the previous examples that we've cited, and even modern day near death experiences have similar imagery, the idea of souls of the dead or spirits living in a lake. There are several things that I'd like to emphasize based on what we just read. The first being that the name of the lake, or at least the name of the lake according to the local people, the Vavinda, 
is a place of learning. And I think that bears significant resemblance, at least to one of the previous examples we talked about, the Lake Manasarovar in Tibet, where that's not a place of learning, but it, the name Manasarovar does mean mind or intelligence or conscience. And so it has a similar flavor and an association there that in both cases, the lake itself is considered something sacred and also having something to do with learning, knowledge, or mind. Also, one other little tidbit that I wanted to share is that the Vadavat Sindhi, which I believe is the section of the Vinda people which find the lake sacred, define themselves by Lake Fundutsi. They call themselves the people of the pool, which I think is pretty self-explanatory how central it is to their worldview if that's how they have chosen to name themselves. And as such, it is interesting that the lake is so sacred and so numinous that people aren't even allowed to bathe or swim in it. If you, are, as an outsider, as a visitor, are allowed to see it, you have to look over your shoulder to show respect. It's, it's very telling in terms of what the lake means to these people. and. Clearly what it means is that it is the place of the dead. It's the place of their ancestors, of their gods. And physically it's not, but I would go as far to say that psychologically it is. And the psyche is a reality. Just as much as ancestors of ours in the West a couple hundred years ago really thought that the host of communion was consecrated and turned into the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, actually, physically. And it was, if you believed it. These are symbolic contents that unconsciously push up from within us and get expressed in particular cultures based on their environmental factors and their history, and they get developed over time and engaged with in ritualistic action. And although what they say is going on might not be actually going on, the transformation that results from whatever ritual or ceremony or action that takes place is real. The people change. Their people gain meaning in their lives and in their sense of themselves, their sense of their community, their sense of their world based on these interactions. And the same goes for us. And at the deepest level in our psychology, there is meaning that we all share, that we can all partake in. I mean, there's even a symbolic association between Christianity's most sacred ritual of the Holy Communion and what the Vinda chiefs do by swallowing a rock that they connect with a legendary white crocodile. Both are swallowing or eating the deity itself or something associated with the deity to incorporate it, to become it. You are what you eat, right? I don't know what the Vinda in particular believe about this white crocodile, but we can comment on the fact that it is white. Now, we associate white with holiness, but at its bare minimum, it is the most primal color, the color that 
becomes whatever color comes in contact with it. It's like multiplying by one. And symbolically, that expresses itself as purity, holiness, sacredness. And then as far as the rock is concerned, there is a whole line of tradition and symbolism that associates Christ with the rock. And we've even had a couple episodes that have touched specifically on this image of the self as a rock or crystal. And to consume that is to become it, to live it, to incorporate it. So I hope at this point that we've covered enough ground for you to start to get the sense that this really might be something that is part of our shared psychology. And here I'd like to start to bring in some of the ambiguity surrounding the symbolism of the lake. Symbols can never be fully fleshed out, fully explained away. They have a numinosity and they have an ambiguity to them that makes them so difficult due to their irrationality. It's not a one-to-one sort of relationship. The meanings can be many and plentiful, and you have to explore it as you go along. But as much as the lake has a light side of the good and the beautiful and the place of learning and the place of the ancestors and all of that positive side, there is just as equally a dark side, a negative side. And we even started to see a little bit of this in the reading we did on Lake Fundudzi. The fact that when the Vinda wanted to make an offering of beer to the lake and someone had to go into the lake, they tied a rope to him so he would not get dragged down by the ancestors or the spirits. So here we're going to start to incorporate some of that darker side because the exploration of this symbol would not be complete without it. And so to start the process of wading into the dark side of the lake, let's say, I want to focus in on a truly ambiguous symbol that has appeared in connection with my research into the appearance and mythology of lakes. And that is the snake, which we've already seen in the case of the Vinda people and their belief in a python god of fertility living in Lake Fundudzi or around it. But I found many other examples of snakes appearing in connection with the lake, and so I thought it might be a good place to start as we bring in this dark aspect of how the symbolism and the image can appear. Just a little disclaimer before we get started. The mythology and symbolism of snakes is so great and so rich that it probably deserves its own episode. So we're going to be very limited in in how much we talk about that and their connection with the lake. And so just know there's a lot more that perhaps I'll touch on in later episodes or its own episode because obviously the snake has a very deep connection with mankind and its symbolism and its appearance in religion and mythology. So I want to start incorporating that darker element into our discussion of the lake by reading a little passage I found in Jung's work on alchemy called Mysterium Conjunctionis, which we've quoted from earlier in this episode. One of the fun things about reading Jung, especially in 
his later years is there is just as much information in the footnotes on a particular page as there is in the page itself. And so you kind of have to bounce back and forth between whatever sentence he wrote above and then jumping down below to see his footnote for further information for historical reference, for reference to his other works or uh, works of other scholars. It's a very fun sort of way to read because you're bouncing around and you're getting lots of information. But in this case, I found an interesting little aside that he adds in as a footnote towards the beginning of the book. Quote, a woman patient who was much concerned with the problem of the opposites dreamt that, quote, on the shore of a lake, i.e. the edge of the unconscious, two ring snakes as thick as an arm with pale human heads were copulating, end quote. About six months later came the following dream, quote, a snow-white snake with a black belly was growing out of my breast. I felt a deep love for it, end quote. Okay, so this footnote is referring to a paragraph in which Jung is talking about how the unconscious often uses theriomorphic symbolism to represent certain contents. In this case, contents which represented an opposition or a conflict between two opposing forces, which were symbolized by two snakes that were copulating. They were being reconciled. They were joining together. And sure enough, the dream six months later represents the solution, the union between those two opposing snakes or two opposing contents. We unfortunately don't have any context about what the conflict was that was solved in the patient. We only have this little tidbit about how it expressed itself symbolically. But I thought the dream was fascinating in its symbolism and a good place to start bringing in this darker side of the image of the lake. As Jung points out in the commentary on the dream, the dream itself takes place on the edge of a lake, which he points out is representing the edge of the unconscious. So if we follow Jung's notion that the lake represents the unconscious, the collective unconscious, our psyches and their objective phenomenology, then the snake or the serpent or the creature living in the lake would represent an archetypal content, something that an idea, a pattern, a motif that is part of our psychic makeup, our blueprint. Just as our bodies follow similar forms and layouts and functions, perhaps our psychology does as well. And these find expression in a compensatory manner depending on cultural contexts and environmental contexts and personal contexts too. So if we start to examine what some of these archetypal forms are that are connected with the lake, like the serpent or the dragon or lake monster or fish, I think we can start to amplify 
what the symbolism of the lake is and how we can interact with it and how it manifests and how it expresses itself mythologically and symbolically and what the meaning might be there. And I found a really good passage that starts to explore some of the ideas surrounding snakes and serpents and dragons and their connection with water symbolism and lakes in Patterns in Comparative Religion by Mercy Eliade, which we touched on earlier. Quote, Water Animals and Emblems Dragons, snakes, shellfish, dolphins, fish, and so on are the emblems of water. Hidden in the depths of the ocean, they are infused with the sacred power of the abyss. Lying quietly in lakes or swimming across rivers, they bring rain, moisture, and floods, thus governing the fertility of the world. Dragons dwell in the clouds and in lakes. They have charge of thunderbolts. They pour down water from the skies, making both fields and women fruitful. We shall be reverting later to the many-sided symbolism of dragons, snakes, shells, and such. In the present paragraph, I shall merely glance at it, limiting myself to the Chinese and Southeast Asian cultures. Dragons and snakes, according to Chuang Su, symbolize rhythmic life, for the dragon stands for the spirit of water, whose harmonious fluctuations feed life and make all civilization possible. The dragon Ying gathers all the waters together and orders the rain, for he is himself the principle of moisture. Quote, When a drought grows acute, they make an image of the dragon Ying and it starts to rain. In early Chinese writings, you often find a linking of dragon, thunderbolt, and fertility. Quote, the beast of the thunder has the body of a dragon and a human head. End quote. A girl can become pregnant from a dragon's saliva. Fu Si, one of the founders of Chinese civilization, was born in a pool associated with dragons. In China, the dragon, an emblem of sky and water, was constantly associated with the emperor, who represented the rhythms of the cosmos and conferred fecundity on the earth. When the rhythms were disturbed, when the life of nature or of society became troubled, the emperor knew what he must do to regenerate his creative power and reestablish order. A king of the Sia dynasty to guarantee the development of his kingdom ate dragons. In Chinese mythology, which is that of a people living away from the sea, the dragon, emblem of water, has always got more definite sky powers than he has elsewhere. The fertility of water becomes centered in the clouds and the world above. But the pattern of fecundity, water, kingship, holiness is more closely adhered to in the Southeast Asian mythologies in which the ocean is seen as the foundation of all reality and the giver of all powers. Jay Przluski has analyzed a great many Australasian and Indonesian legends and folktales which all present one special feature. The hero owes his extraordinary status of king or saint to the fact that he was born of a water animal. All these traditions show very clearly the sacred importance and consecrating power of water. Both sovereignty and sanctity are the gift of sea spirits, 
magico-religious power lies at the bottom of the sea and is given to the heroes by female beings. Serpent genies did not dwell only in the seas and oceans, but also in lakes, pools, wells, and springs. The worship of serpents and serpent genies in India and elsewhere, in whatever setting we find it, always preserves its magico-religious bond with water. Serpents and serpent genies are always found close to water, or in charge of it. There are genies guarding the springs of life, of immortality, of holiness, as well as all the emblems connected with life, fecundity, heroism, immortality, and treasure. End quote. Okay, so I thought this was a very important passage to share based on some of the things that we've discussed so far and a lot of connections that can be made. Now, we haven't really gotten into the darker, evil sort of aspect of the serpent or the snake or the dragon, but in this case, I thought it was fascinating because clearly the dragon in the East Asian cultural context seems to be associated with fertility and by extension serpents as well. And so here we have a connection that we can draw with the beliefs of the Vinda and Lake Funduzi. The idea of a python god of fertility lines up quite well with what we just read about East Asian beliefs about dragons. And not only does the symbol of dragons and serpents line up quite well with fertility and the rhythms of life, but this passage also placed them in the context in which we are exploring, that of a lake. One of the founders of Chinese civilization, Fu Si, sounds as though the myth surrounding his birth describes him being conceived by a dragon at a pool, which is also quite similar to some of the things we were reading about Lake Fundudzi. The Vinda even call themselves the people of the pool. And so these are archetypal patterns that are being expressed in a specific cultural form, but have an underlying common theme or meaning. And I think it even relates to some of the ideas that we saw in Cleo's vision of her seeing the conception of her own child in a lake. Now, in that case, there was no dragon or serpent involved, but still the idea of moisture water being the source of life, the origin of all new things, the residing place of spirits which emerge out of the formless chaos, the formless abyss of water into reality. I think that is very much present in even her case. And from here, we can even see the lake as the womb, the place out of which new life emerges. And here you get these ideas of fertility, of rebirth, of the afterlife, of life itself in the lake. And so we're starting to build this web even further of the lake being the womb, being the place of the dead, being life itself. 
unfortunately, this is not a very simple formula that we can just say x equals y and and that's that. It's a very squishy sort of process in which we have to explore these different facets of of this one particular symbol that we're examining and the different forms it can take. And so it starts to bleed into these other areas, which is fascinating, but can make it quite difficult, especially for those of us who really like logical one-to-one relationships. And another factor that is going to complicate matters is that we ourselves are part of the equation in our own ethical choices, our moral choices, how we relate to a given unconscious factor or symbol will determine how it presents itself. And so symbols and images can end up being quite ambiguous depending on the human factor involved of what our relationship to them is. At least that's how it seems. Because here in the East Asian context, the dragon seems to be quite a positive symbol, helpful, giving life and fertility and blessing heroes and saints and that sort of thing. But as we know in the Western context, the dragon can be the negative, evil, scary thing that has to be overcome. And that may reflect in specific moral or cultural or religious attitudes. So if we are thinking of the dragon representing fertility or the urge to life, depending on how we interact with that urge can yield different results in the world, I suppose. And so cultural ideas can influence how ambiguous symbols present themselves, like in the East and the West but also our own personal relation to specific forces and instincts and archetypal forms perhaps could influence their character and how they present themselves. Our own choices, our own the way we live our lives and the way we interact with others and with ourselves can make the difference between seeing the wise, helpful dragon in the lake or the evil, scary demonic dragon in the lake of fire. For instance, generally speaking, in the West, we tend to have a sense of guilt and shame and sin associated with what the serpent represents. It was the snake in the Garden of Eden that tempted us into awakening, into consciousness, and that is seen as a sin against God. But on the other hand, If that had not occurred, then the whole divine plan of Christ's salvation could not have unfolded and we would presumably still be animals and not know the difference between right and wrong or not be conscious. And so even in our own Western, I put that in quotes, Judeo-Christian creation myth, it is the snake that tempts us into consciousness out of unconsciousness. And we are attempting to get back to that, get back to that paradise. And that paradise, as we have seen in modern NDEs of the ones that we read, can take the form of a beautiful lake. I think we should take these ideas seriously, 
not as something literally or physically real or something made up, but rather as the accumulation of objective psychological activity that has occurred both individually and collectively over millennia, as this unconscious factor in nature has organized and presented itself in images, and it seems to be indistinguishable from an experience of the divine. Okay, so to illustrate the darker aspect, the negative side of these images we're dealing with, of the lake and the serpent, I wanted to share a myth I found from the Ojibwe people of southern Canada and Midwestern U.S. It's a story about a hero that conquers a great serpent in a lake. I found this on a website called nativelanguages.org. And while I read it, I want you to try and keep in mind all of the different motifs and manifestations of this imagery in the various cultural contexts that we've discussed so far and even keep an eye out for some deeper religious patterns that perhaps we're more familiar with, such as that of a great flood. Okay, so, quote, The Great Serpent and the Great Flood One day, when Nanabozo returned to his lodge after a long journey, he missed his young cousin who lived with him. He called the cousin's name, but heard no answer. Looking around on the sand for tracks, Nanabozo was startled by the trail of the great serpent. He then knew that his cousin had been seized by his enemy. Nanabozo picked up his bow and arrows and followed the track of the serpent. He passed the great river, climbed mountains, and crossed over valleys until he came to the shores of a deep and gloomy lake. It is now called Manitou Lake, Spirit Lake, and also the Lake of Devils. The trail of the great serpent led to the edge of the water. Nanabozo could see, at the bottom of the lake, the house of the great serpent. It was filled with evil spirits, who were his servants and his companions. Their forms were monstrous and terrible. Most of them, like their master, resembled spirits. In the center of this horrible group was the great serpent himself coiling his terrifying length around the cousin of Nanabozo. The head of the serpent was red as blood. His fierce eyes glowed like fire. His entire body was armed with hard and glistening scales of every color and shade. Looking down on these twisting spirits of evil, Nanabozo made up his mind that he would get revenge on them for the death of his cousin. He said to the clouds, Disappear! and the clouds went out of sight. Winds be still at once, and the winds became still. When the air over the lake of evil spirits had become stagnant, Nanabozo said to the sun, Shine over the lake with all the fierceness you can. Make the water boil. In these ways, thought Nanabozo, he would force the great serpent to seek the cool shade of the trees growing on the shores of the lake. There he would seize the enemy and get revenge. After giving his orders, Nanabozo took his bow and arrows and placed himself near the spot where he thought the serpents would come to enjoy the shade. 
Then he changed himself into the broken stump of a withered tree. The winds became still, the air stagnant, and the sun shot hot rays from a cloudless sky. In time, the water of the lake became troubled, and bubbles rose to the surface. The rays of the sun had penetrated to the home of the serpents. As the water bubbled and foamed, a serpent lifted his head above the center of the lake and gazed around the shores. Soon another serpent came to the surface. Both listened for the footsteps of Nanabozo, but they heard him nowhere. Nanabozo is sleeping, they said to one another. And then they plunged beneath the waters, which seemed to hiss as they closed over the evil spirits. Not long after, the lake became more troubled. Its water boiled from its very depths, and the hot waves dashed wildly against the rocks on its banks. Soon the great serpent came slowly to the surface of the water and moved toward the shore. His blood-red crest glowed. The reflection from his scales was blinding, as blinding as the glitter of a sleet-covered forest beneath the winter sun. He was followed by all the evil spirits. So great was their number that they soon covered the shores of the lake. When they saw the broken stump of the withered tree, they suspected that it might be one of the disguises of Nanabozo. They knew his cunning. One of the serpents approached the stump, wound his tail around it, and tried to drag it down into the lake. Nanabozo could hardly keep from crying aloud, for the tail of the monster prickled his sides. But he stood firm and was silent. The evil spirits moved on. The great serpent glided into the forest and wound his many coils around the trees. His companions also found shade, all but one. One remained near the shore to listen for the footsteps of Nanabozo. From the stump, Nanabozo watched until all the serpents were asleep and the guard was intently looking in another direction. Then he silently drew an arrow from his quiver, placed it in his bow, and aimed it at the heart of the great serpent. It reached its mark. With a howl that shook the mountains and startled the wild beasts in their caves, the monster awoke, followed by his terrified companions, who were also howling with rage and terror. The great serpent plunged into the water. At the bottom of the lake, there still lay the body of Nanabozo's cousin. In their fury, the serpents tore it into a thousand pieces. His shredded lungs rose to the surface and covered the lake with whiteness. The great serpent soon knew that he would die from his wound, but he and his companions were determined to destroy Nanabozo. They caused the water of the lake to swell upward and to pound against the shore with the sound of many thunders. Madly, the flood rolled over the land, over the tracks of Nanabozo, carrying with it the rocks and trees. High on the crest of the highest wave floated the wounded great serpent. His eyes glared around them. His hot breath mingled with the hot breath of his companions. Nanabozo, fleeing before the angry waters, thought of his Indian children. He ran through their villages shouting, Run to the mountaintops! The great serpent is angry and is flooding the earth. Run, run. The people caught up their children and found safety on the mountains. Nanabozo continued his flight along the base of the western hills and then up a high mountain beyond Lake Superior, 
far to the north. There he found many men and animals that had escaped from the flood that was already covering the valleys and plains and even the highest hills. Still the waters continued to rise. Soon all the mountains were under the flood, except the high one on which stood Nanabozo. There he gathered together timber and made a raft. Upon it the men and women and animals with him placed themselves. Almost immediately the mountaintop disappeared from their view, and they floated along the face of the waters. For many days they floated. At long last the flood began to subside. Soon the people on the raft saw trees on the tops of the mountains. Then they saw the mountains and the hills, and then the plains and the valleys. When the water disappeared from the land, the people who survived learned that the great serpent was dead and that his companions had returned to the bottom of the lake of spirits. There they remain to this day. For fear of Nanabozo, they have never dared to come forth again. End quote. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here and a lot to explore, but I think this is going to add a lot to our discussion so far of the symbolism of the lake. To start out, I'd say it's quite different from some of the idyllic, paradisal depictions of the lake we've seen in modern near-death experiences that we've read previously, and even from some of the helpful, positive versions of the lake we've seen in Tibetan Buddhism, or the Lake of the Kachanas, the Lake of Spirits, in the case of the Zuni. Perhaps it's closer to the Vinda belief in the lake that the spirits are dangerous and can pull one down, which certainly we see represented here in this Ojibwe myth. So with this, we are getting into that darker side of the lake, which is necessary for us to have a complete and total picture of the symbol. In fact, the lake in this case is called the Lake of Spirits, but also called the Lake of Devils. And certainly it is the home of the evil spirits, which are the companions of the great serpent. And based on what happened to Nanabozo's cousin, clearly very dangerous. Now, in trying to make sense of this myth, in trying to interpret it and understand the meaning behind these symbols, I'm going to draw on Jungian psychology and interpret it as if it were a, a dream or, or some psychological experience which contains meaning for all of us. And I'd like to emphasize that I'm not trying to psychologize someone's cultural heritage away. In fact, I'm not try- I don't want to say this is just psychology or something like that. It's, it's infinitely more rich than that. I only want to add a level that perhaps we can connect to in a more intimate way. That's something that we can all partake in because obviously someone's culture is a very deep part of who they are and and incredibly important and sacred. And I'm not trying to take away from that or boil that away or, or subtract from that in any way. For all of these different cultures and examples of the lake that I've cited previously, I only want to find a deeper meaning that we all can understand and, and see within ourselves. 
and be able to relate to these images and symbols and these motifs and patterns. Because if I were to have a dream of a giant snake in a lake, well, perhaps this story could help me find a way to integrate it, to relate to it, to understand it. And perhaps that would help me to better understand myself and to grow. So, yeah, I, I just want to emphasize that because I want to be very sensitive that people's cultures are, are important and I don't want to take away from that in any way. Okay, so the beginning of the story, we find out that Nana Bozo's cousin has been killed and dragged under the lake by the great serpent. If we were going to look at this through a psychological lens, perhaps what that could mean is that there was some complex or neuroses or psychosis or disorder that managed to pull someone down under the water. And I think we've all unfortunately seen examples of that, whether that is a, like I said, a disorder, a trauma, or a alcoholism, or some kind of substance abuse, something that is able to pull someone beneath into a depression or even some worse state, perhaps even death. And at the beginning of the story, we see that the lake is where the dead go, where the body of Nanaboza's cousin resides. It is the grave. It is the underworld. It is the land of the dead. And the home of this great serpent. So the great serpent perhaps is some unconscious complex that is coming to the surface and causing some terrible, awful tragedy to occur. I want to make a quick aside regarding... The idea that monsters, serpents, live in lakes, that's obviously a folklore, mythological idea, and one that many people still believe today, regardless of all the sonar scans and research that has been done to disprove that idea. For instance, I've been to Loch Ness before. I didn't see a monster, but I did definitely understand why people could believe that there was something lurking beneath that black water. And I think that's because that represents a psychological reality within us. There is stuff that's hiding beneath the surface that we can't see that does come up and scare us, that could pull us under, that could cause some awful tragedy to happen. But nowadays, instead of thinking of it as a monster or a demon, we might give it a diagnosis and try to prescribe something to deal with it. Nevertheless, there are all these stories worldwide of lake monsters, and certainly people see things which are weird in, in early morning hours or the light is low and you see some wave or log or something and your mind immediately jumps to there being a serpent or or monster, or something. But just as an illustration of why I would tend to think that this is something psychological that obviously is representing something, but perhaps not literally or physically like we tend to prefer. My parents just recently built a house on Lake Norman, which is a lake that's north of Charlotte, North Carolina. 
This lake was created in, I think, the 60s by Duke Energy, and they dammed up the Catawba River and formed this quite large lake. But it, it's obviously not an ancient old Loch Ness type of lake, considering it was made uh, about 60, 70 years ago. But still, there is a belief in a lake monster living in Lake Norman, which they call Normie, uh, obviously an allusion to Nessie of Loch Ness. Now, I know there was quite a sizable Scottish population that settled in North Carolina when it was a colony, but still, the belief in a lake monster in a lake that was formed in the early 60s is pretty far-fetched. And, you know, there's been sightings and perhaps pictures taken or, or that sort of thing, the usual routine that comes along with the lake monster trope. But I think this just illustrates how salient and meaningful this idea really is. Because there's no factual way that an ancient lake monster could be living in a man-made lake, let alone some old lake, you know, that has been around for millions of years. But at least there, you can kind of <laughs> see how maybe something was able to survive or, you know, some some crazy idea like that. But clearly in a man-made lake in the 60s, that's not going to be the case. Still, this idea is living and, and people, I don't know how seriously they take it, but the fact that it's there at least points to something, some psychological reality to this idea that, well, no, there's not a monster in the lake. Perhaps there are monsters within us that get projected out onto that dark water. So how are we supposed to deal with these monsters and serpents lurking within us? How are we supposed to handle them? How are we supposed to fight them and overcome them? Well, Nanabozo comes up with a plan. From what I understand, Nanabozo is a cultural hero and trickster figure in Ojibwe storytelling and mythology and he might have an association with their creation myth as well. He's very clever and resourceful, and he sometimes takes the form of a rabbit, but clearly from the story, he can shapeshift into whatever he needs to be. In terms of Jungian psychology, he might be a figure of the self, the totality of the psyche, a almost Christ-like savior figure or trickster that is able to guide others and in this case, serves as the hero and the moral basis for the lesson of this story. So Nanabozo decides to set a trap for the great serpent and his evil spirit companions. And it sounds as though Nanabozo is so in tune with the world and so in tune with himself, and having a almost deity-like level to him, that he is able to command the winds and command the sun. So what that expresses is a deep connection between he and, let's say, the divine, the world, a deep connection with himself that he has these godlike powers. And if one were to interpret it psychologically, the wind is the spirit. It's the pneuma that blows 
over the face of the waters. It is the force of the divine. And to be able to control that and command it, that represents a deep attunement, almost a, a, a God incarnate sort of connotation, I suppose. And the sun is the light of consciousness. It's attention, it's libido, it's focus. It's the warmth that comes from us focusing our attention and our efforts upon something. And so what the story is suggesting, at least psychologically, I believe, is that by directing and focusing the light of our consciousness on the unconscious, on the lake, having the sun shine on the lake, that causes the content or the issue or the problem, whatever we're trying to solve, to rise to the surface. It brings it forth. So this complex is able to rise to the surface and be dealt with. For a vast majority of human history, there have not been licensed therapists and counselors. But these stories presumably have served a similar function, that myths and stories are able to express psychological processes. That's why we find them so salient and important and meaningful. And they're able to help us when they apply in a given situation. The right symbol and the right myth at the exact right time can have an immense healing effect, can help us frame where we are and what we're supposed to do and how we can outgrow whatever is plaguing us. And that process can very much happen in the form of a dream if we're able to speak the symbolic language and understand it and integrate it. So to continue with the story, the sun is beating down upon the water and there's no wind, and Nanabozo has hidden himself, disguised himself as a broken tree stump along the water's edge. And the lake is getting charged up. It's getting very warm and starts to boil and and thrash. And this drives the great serpent and his evil companions up from the depths. So perhaps this is raising up of an issue or a complex from the depths of the psyche. And I found it very fascinating, the description of the great serpent, of how he looked. For instance, he was blood red, had a blood-red crest, as the story says. Red has a very potent sort of meaning to it. We find it very engaging, both in a positive and negative way. It's blood, but it's also passion. It's fire. It is dynamism. It is movement and energy. It's, it's definitely got a sense of action to it. And certainly, the whole story has to do with the, of how does one deal with this action? How do we resolve this force that is coming up from the bottom of the lake. It's a coagulation of energy that has caused a tragedy to occur on the surface and brought the body of Nanabozo's cousin back down into the land of the dead. Also, how the great serpent appears is very fascinating. His scales are supposed to be so reflective that They are almost blinding, glistening in the sun, and they're incredibly hard and durable. 
And the fact that the serpent himself is reflective is just fascinating because it shows that the problem itself contains the solution to the problem. It's like the poison containing the cure to the poison. It's incredibly profound because it is the process of reflection, of focusing one's energy upon the issue that it gets resolved. It's reflecting upon the unconscious, upon the lake, upon something that is lurking down there. That is how it is brought up and conquered. And that's even present in the great serpent himself. But before Nanabozo can spring his trap, he is almost discovered by one of the great serpent's evil spirit companions. He wraps himself around the tree stump and tries to squeeze it because he suspects it might be Nanabozo. But Nanabozo succeeds in remaining still and not crying out and not giving in. And I thought this was a interesting detail because it it shows a, a kind of trial or a kind of suffering that must be undertaken in order to deal with the great problem of the great serpent. And because our hero is able to endure that suffering and not give in, he is then able to take a shot at his enemy with his bow and arrow. And the process by which Nanabozo commanded the sun to heat up the lake and bring the great serpent forth is reiterated in miniature in the process by which Nanabozo defeats the great serpent. He uses directed, focused attention or consciousness to strike at the heart of the serpent. Just as the light of consciousness was that which was able to raise up the issue, it is the same force that is able to overcome the issue as well. I'm going to read a brief passage from Projection and Recollection and Jungian Psychology by Marie-Louise von Franz to try to understand what perhaps a arrow and the strike of an arrow could symbolize. Quote, Spears and arrowheads are symbolic expressions of direction, the directedness of psychic energy as has been established in countless drawings by patients. In the mythology of classical antiquity, Apollo and Artemis were especially noted for sending death and disease via their arrows. Thus Apollo sent a plague to the army attacking Troy, because Agamemnon had insulted one of his priests. In Roman renderings, Apollo and Mars dispatch arrows of disease. Arrows from a god, however, produce not only sickness and death. Sudden seizures of passionate love also come from the arrows of the god Eros, Cupid, Amor. Suddenly falling passionately in love is also experienced as rather like a sickness, in that one pines away or languishes. In Indian mythology, the love god Kama is armed with bow and arrow, and Buddha describes the erotic wish as an arrow, quote, but if those sensual pleasures fail the person who desires and wishes for them, he will suffer, pierced by the arrow of pain. End quote. So here the arrow of Nanabozo may represent the directed, focused attention of getting to the heart of 
the issue that is represented by the great serpent. These are imagistic representations, symbols of psychological processes. And it was interesting to hear von Franz give examples of different mythological motifs of arrows being used by gods on humans to cause ailments and moods and even love, passionate sort of falling in love. But what is suggested by the Ojibwe story, at least, is that we ourselves can use the directness of libido or consciousness or focus or attention to dissolve or integrate the congealed energy that has formed a complex that has been lurking at the bottom of the lake of our psyche and merging now and then to cause trouble. And so once the great serpent is pierced through the heart by the arrow, he and all of his spirit companions plunge down to the bottom of the lake in their fury and their howling, and the mountains are shaking. It's a great tumult. And something very interesting happens, which is a detail which took me a little while to think about, and I still don't quite know what to do with it. But the fact that the serpents in their fury tear Nanabozo's cousin's body to shreds, and particularly his lungs, and this causes the lake to turn white, I think symbolically that is very, very intriguing. To start to pull this apart a little bit, I want to read a paragraph from a book by Edward Edinger called The Psyche in Antiquity. It's about the roots of Greek philosophy and its overlap with depth psychology. And he is going to be talking about the Greeks had different words for the soul, the different aspects of the soul. And one of them is the lungs. Now, I don't know whether the Ojibwe or other indigenous peoples had a particular association with the lungs and the soul, but it seems to be something that at least is present among certain cultures. And it would make sense because obviously the surest sign that someone has passed away is when their lungs are no longer breathing. So I'm going to read this quick paragraph. Quote, This word, soul, is so fundamental to the work of analytical psychology that knowing its etymology is useful. In Homer, there are three main terms which may be translated as soul or psyche. Psyche is one. Thymos is another. Phren or phrenes, plural, is a third. Roughly speaking, psyche referred to that which was thought of as the breath soul, that which leaves the body with the breath when the body dies. The thymos was thought of as the blood soul, the source of affect, of emotionality. The phren or phrenes referred to the midriff, the lungs or diaphragm. It is still enshrined in such words as schizophrenic, for example. It refers to the location of the thymos, which was felt to be in the chest or diaphragm. End quote. Okay, so as I mentioned, this is dealing with Greek conceptions of the soul, and so it might not have anything to do with an Ojibwe tale, but assuming there could be something underlying the meaning that the Greeks saw in 
framing the lungs and diaphragm and midriff as an aspect of the soul, well, if that extends to at least a greater part of humanity, then perhaps we can draw some tentative conclusions about this fascinating detail that was included in this story. Why would the serpents tear up Nanabozo's cousin's lungs in fury? And this is very fascinating, especially when we think about it in terms of the symbolic ideas that we've been discussing so far that are associated with the lake. The lake is the afterlife or the realm of the dead, and the lungs could possibly be the soul, at least, going based on some of the Greek associations and maybe a broader human association as well. Then that dramatic moment could possibly represent Nanabozo's cousin's soul entering the afterlife or entering the realm of the dead, being dissolved and changing the nature of the lake itself, the psyche perhaps. This moment makes me even suspect that this whole traumatic struggle that's going on might have to do with the problem of death. The great serpent could represent the trauma and disturbing nature of seeing a loved one pass away and then not knowing what happens to their soul, to who they are. And here, once Nanabozo is able to confront that and strike it in its heart, then there is a release. There is a dissolving of the soul into the afterlife, into the lake. There's closure. The body is no longer there. And that would make sense given the fact that the whole story began with the death of Nanabozo's cousin. And this whole story seems to be a grappling with that and trying to solve that, that problem. And it's one that we all face today as well. And that makes it timeless and archetypal. As a result of the wounding or killing of the great serpent, the lungs of Nanabozo's cousin turned the lake white. And there's an interesting parallel here with the stages of the alchemical process and medieval philosophy. Jung tried to find historical roots and analogs of the psychoanalytic process, and the best one that he found was alchemy. Now, I've talked about alchemy a little bit in previous episodes, but just as a brief recap, it was a forerunner to our modern science of chemistry and was prevalent in the Middle Ages in Europe and in other parts of the world at different times as well. I think originally the chemical aspect of it, the messing around with chemical experiments and having it be infused in a religious language can be traced back to the mummification rituals of the ancient Egyptians. And so it has very deep roots, but it was a lot more than just hucksters and frauds trying to turn lead into gold, although that did happen, which is kind of how we're taught about it in school. It was just a, a precursor to chemistry, and it was about a bunch of fraudsters trying to make gold. But it had a religious element to it that Jung recognized as the alchemist projecting unconscious psychological contents onto chemical experiments. 
And so by studying and examining the alchemical texts symbolically and psychologically, he had an analog to the psychoanalytic process to have another reference point to perhaps understand what certain symbolic images meant, just like how we're using mythology and folklore and religion to try and understand the symbolic image of the lake as it appears in modern-day near-death experiences. And in the alchemical process, there was a stage known as the albedo, which is another word for whiteness. And I think it is an interesting parallel to the process we see undergoing in the lake after the killing of the great serpent, where the lake turns white. I'm going to read a brief description of the albedo from its article on Wikipedia, just to give us an overview and see if there's anything that we can take away from it. Quote, In alchemy, albedo is one of the four major stages of the magnum opus, along with nigretto, citronitas, and rubedo. It is a Latinicized term meaning whiteness. Following the chaos or massa confusa of the nigretto stage, the alchemist undertakes a purification in albedo, which is literally referred to as ablutio, the washing away of impurities. This phrase is concerned with, quote, bringing light and clarity to the prima materia, the personal material. Titus Burkhart interprets the albedo as the end of the lesser work, corresponding to a spiritualization of the body. The goal of this portion of the process is to regain the original purity and receptivity of the soul. End quote. Okay, so there's a lot more here that I could dive into, but I think for our purposes, this was a very enlightening sort of example of this imagery in action because it's such a weird part of the story, okay? The great serpent gets mortally wounded and then his companions all rip up Nanabozo's cousin's lungs and it turns the lake white. It's like, what does that mean? Well, here is a parallel that is based on an unconscious process that could be at play in this particular story as well. And I think that end bit in which Burkhart was talking about how it could represent a spiritualization of, of the body is exactly what I was talking about in how the lake turning white could represent the entrance of the soul into the afterlife or the dissolving of the soul into the collective or the psyche or the realm of the dead. And the stages of the alchemical process reflect this as well. Uh, the prior stage to the albedo is called the nigretto, and it is blackness. It's associated with death. And then according to the next step of the process of the alchemical opus, next comes the albedo, which is the whiteness, the spiritualization and purification of the body. And so I thought that was a very useful bit of information to try to elucidate this very strange imagery. And it's even fitting because, as I mentioned, the roots of alchemy go back to the preparation and speculation on the state of the body in Egyptian mummification rituals. 
But as we've been dealing with these symbolic, dramatic images, we have been trying to tie them to a psychological process that is underneath them that it could possibly represent in each one of us. And that makes it relevant to us in understanding ourselves and each other. Now, I imagine that this story might represent part of the psychoanalytic process that once a trauma or complex or something is dealt with, there is a release of energy. There is a release of tension of something that causes particular side effects, which in this case would be represented by a flood. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that would be exactly because I'm not a psychoanalyst. I've just read a lot of the work of Jung and others, but I would suspect that it represents a tangible reaction to when something is dealt with in a psychoanalytical setting. That when a problem is solved, an issue is gotten to the bottom of, that there could be a release of energy, and that perhaps could be good or bad, or manifest in a positive or negative way. For instance, in many of Jung's works, he often talks about the danger of falling into psychosis or suffering an inflation, which mythologically would be represented by being eaten by a monster or being swallowed up by the flood, being swamped by the rising water. That is, to identify with the unconscious content. Say, I am the great serpent. And when that happens, it obviously leads to bad results. And he saw this in many of his, well, in some of his patients as a possible pit that they could fall into. So perhaps the flood that gets released by the great serpent is that danger, that real possibility of the unconscious rising up and swallowing up the individual, Nanabozo. But while this is clearly a very dangerous situation in the story, the one that threatens not only Nanabozo, but apparently all of the people who are in the surrounding area, this can also be taken in a somewhat positive way as well. And I think we have license to interpret it in this positive light because Nanabozo and all the other people are able to survive and the story has a happy ending. And the energy that gets released in, from the vanquishing of the great serpent or the integration of that content is ultimately the means by which the world is remade into a new order, to a new situation. A, there has been a growth, there has been a, an overcoming, and there has been knowledge gained, and that is a better situation than the one that we found ourselves in at the beginning of the story. I want to read again from the book Patterns in Comparative Religion by Mercia Eliade because he has a couple paragraphs on the symbolism of floods and the deluge. And this is a archetypal pattern that we see not only famously in the Bible in the story of Noah's Ark, but in many cultures around the world. And I thought what he had to say about it was quite helpful. Quote, Almost all the traditions of deluges are bound up with the idea of humanity returning to the water whence it had come, 
and the establishment of a new era and a new humanity. They display a conception of the universe and its history as something cyclic. One era is abolished by disaster, and a new one opens, ruled by new men. This conception of cycles is also shown by the convergence of the lunar myths with themes of floods and deluges. For the moon is by far the most important symbol of rhythmic development, of death and resurrection. Just as phases of the moon govern initiation ceremonies, in which the neophyte dies to wake into a new life, so too they are intimately connected with the floods that annihilate the old humanity and set the stage for the appearance of the new. In the mythologies of the area around the Pacific, tribes are generally supposed to have sprung from some mythical moon animal which had escaped a watery disaster. The tribes were descended either from a shipwrecked man whose life was saved or the lunar animal which caused the flood to happen. There is no need in this chapter to stress the rhythmic nature of this re-engulfing of all things by water and their periodic emergence, a rhythm which is at root of all the geographical myths and apocalypses, Atlantis, and so on. What I must point out is how widespread and how coherent these Neptunian mythological themes are. Water is in existence before every creation, and periodically, water absorbs it all again to dissolve it in itself, purify it, enrich it with new possibilities, and regenerate it. Men disappear periodically in a deluge or flood because of their sins. In most of the myths of the Pacific area, the catastrophe was caused by some ritual misdemeanor. They never perish utterly, but reappear in a new form return to the same destined path, and await the repetition of the same catastrophe, which will again dissolve them in water. I am not sure that one can call it a pessimistic conception of life. It is rather a resigned view, imposed simply by seeing the pattern made by water, the moon, and change. The deluge myth, with all that it implies, shows what human life may be worth to a mind other than the human mind. From the point of view of water, human life is something fragile that must periodically be engulfed, because it is the fate of all forms to be dissolved in order to reappear. If forms are not regenerated by being periodically dissolved in water, they will crumble, exhaust their powers of creativity, and finally die away. Mankind would eventually be completely deformed by wickedness and sin. Emptied of its seeds of life and creative powers, humanity would waste away, weakened and sterile. Instead of permitting this slow regression into subhuman forms, the flood affects an instantaneous dissolution in water, in which sins are purified and from which a new, regenerate humanity will be born. End quote. Okay, so I thought that might be a useful resource as we're trying to talk around this idea of the flood and perhaps its meaning at a deeper level, at an archetypal level, that these patterns that are found worldwide that need not even be a physical flood, which I know people usually try to substantiate and perhaps there's some 
geological evidence after the Ice Age of flooding, and people try to pin this mythology on that historical geological event. And that's fine. I mean, perhaps there is. I, I don't really know. But this symbolism does not necessarily need to be linked to an actual physical flood in order for it to carry meaning, because it seems to have a similar pattern that underlies most of its manifestations in cultures around the world. That is, like Eliad was saying, of man being a corruptible creature and, and being overloaded with sin, eventually the waters rise and purify us and engulf us and reform us and regenerate us that when they recede, we are left with a new world. And I think that is a fairly similar story to the one we hear in the case of the Bible and Noah's Ark as well. And similar to that story, this Ojibwe story of Nanabozo also has a hero or protagonist that is able to survive the flood, who doesn't get swallowed by the rising waters, but is able to build a raft or an ark and not only survive himself, but also save other people, as well as the seeds of life in the form of animals and what have you that will repopulate the earth, so to speak. But if we were going to frame this in the psychological lens that we were talking about earlier, that would refer to the survival of the ego, that our sense of consciousness does not get swamped or lost in this rising flood of unconsciousness, which could take the form of overwhelming emotion or psychosis or possession or inflation that you are no longer in control and the unconscious is exerting itself upon you. And both of these stories represent situations in which through bravery and preparedness and, and courage, the individual is able to save himself and others from that fate. So the story seems to suggest that not only is there danger in the enemy, the foe, the great serpent, that complex that we have to deal with, but, but also after we have dealt with it, that there could be a reaction that we have to protect ourselves against. Just as a quick side note here, I do want to say that I don't know how old this story is in the Ojibwe tradition. I don't know whether it is a purely independent story that came about of its own accord, or if it was influenced by missionaries who had the stories of the Bible and that there could have been some overlap. And so I just want to put that out there as a possible word of caution that perhaps some of the similarity that we see with the story of Noah's Ark could be coming from influence by Christian missionaries. But on the other hand, it could also be a spontaneous creation of the psyche and the culture of the Ojibwe. And so that's just something to keep in mind. And then just to finish up talking about this story, I wanted to point out that there's a lot of wisdom in the way it ends, that eventually the flood subsides and the lake goes back to normal, but the evil spirits still live at the bottom of the lake. 
It's not like Nana Bozo has completely done away with evil, that evil still exists in the world, but says that these evil spirits are afraid to come up for fear of Nana Bozo. And I think that's, that's very accurate to the state of the world and our psychology, that we can't ever just eradicate evil. It always exists in potentia. It's always latent within us as a possibility. And I love that the story includes that detail, that you know, it's not like the usual hero story where the dragon is killed and he gets the girl and that's that. But there's still that seed of evil that can emerge. And I think that's an accurate description of our reality. So I wanted to read this Ojibwe story and talk about it in full length because I think it captures all of what we are trying to get to the bottom to with this episode. And that is, what does the lake mean? And not only what does it mean and how does it appear, but also how should we relate to it? Because I think what is important to note as we've been going through these different examples is that we ourselves are part of the equation. That someone may see a beautiful lake when they die in an NDE and have an amazing experience, but someone else could see an infernal lake of fire. And the imagery is the same. I mean, the basic image of, of the lake, of a body of water surrounded by land, but what makes the difference is our personal relationship to what that lake represents and i think the most basic answer to that is that it represents the psyche as a objective empirical reality that we can encounter within our own inner phenomena and beyond that who knows it could have a metaphysical aspect to it of God and heaven and afterlife and all of those things, or it could have a uh, more strictly natural limitation to it. But it happens of its own accord, and we can at least say that. So we've been trying to explore this symbol of the lake and draw connections and see what we can learn or take away from how this symbol appears in so many different cultures and even in modern experiences of people like you and me. And in this story of the Ojibwe, of Nanabozo and the Great Serpent, we see the three themes of the lake that we've been discussing all in one narrative. That is, the lake is the land of the dead. It is the home of a deity, the Great Serpent. And it also contains the dark aspect of life, the evil spirits who are the companions of the great serpent. From this total package of the lake, we have a tale which gives us a moral lesson that through determination, through suffering, through focus and attention, through wisdom and cleverness, that we can overcome the dark, consumptive aspect of our nature, and perhaps even come to grips with the problem of death itself. 
So the lake is not only this place of darkness and evil spirits, but also the place out of which the opportunity comes to create a new, better world. This is represented by the flood that gets released after Nanabozo slays the great serpent. And so out of that, we can see the lake representing the idea of redemption, salvation. And that is something that we are going to focus more on in part two of this episode, how the lake can represent the suffering and evil and hellfire, but also can at the same time represent salvation and light and goodness and redemption. And for that, we are going to look at a different inhabitant of the lake from the great serpent, but Christ, who appropriately is often associated with the fish. And one thing that absolutely blew me away when I was doing some research for this episode was learning that Christ performed all of his miracles around the Sea of Galilee, which in fact was not a sea, but actually a lake. And so in this next episode, I want to further explore this imagery and symbolism, especially in connection with such an amazing figure as Christ and what that could possibly mean. And then I also want to juxtapose whatever we find in that regard with the image of the lake of fire, which appears prominently in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible and also has some connection to Egyptian mythology. So with the following part of this episode, which will be forthcoming, I want to explore the lake's role in both salvation and damnation. We're also going to touch upon the ambiguous Lady of the Lake in the mythology of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and also going to touch on Pushkar Lake, which is a sacred lake of Brahma in Hinduism. In addition, we're also going to be reading some hellish near-death experiences of people who claim to have seen a lake of fire and trying to make sense of that in connection with the beautiful paradisal lakes that we've seen in near-death experiences at the beginning of this episode. So those are some of the topics that we're going to be covering in the next part of this episode and really fleshing out this idea of salvation and damnation and how they appear in connection with lake symbolism. And we've already seen a little bit of that at play in this Ojibwe story. We have the hero and the monster fighting against each other at the lake. And through that struggle, the hero, Nanabozo, defeats the great serpent and, by that action, redeems the world, creates a new order through the flood that is released. And I want to point out, as we plant these seeds for the following episode of the idea of damnation or salvation in association with the lake, that each of the components of this story of the Ojibwe is ambivalent, and we can find an exact opposite example of the same image in a different culture. So, for example, the great serpent is the monster that must be defeated, the dragon in a way. But we know that in many East Asian cultures, the dragon is not 
an enemy that has to be killed or slain, but is actually a source of wisdom and a helpful entity that can assist the protagonist. And likewise, the hero himself of Nanabozo is, is a trickster figure who is the hero in this case, but he attains his victory through deception and trickery and cunning by lying, essentially. He pretends to be a tree stump and hides from the great serpent. And so in some ways, he's a bit of an anti-hero, and tricksters can often take this role of having this ambiguous element to them, of having these darker sort of evil aspects, but that are used in the service of good. And so then ultimately we come to the lake itself. The lake in this story is also ambiguous in that it is the home of the evil spirits and the great serpent, but it also provides the opportunity to gain wisdom, to integrate the death of Nanabozo's cousin and flood to create a new world in the surrounding area. Notice, too, how the motif, the archetype of the great flood which remakes the world, in this case is not due to the sins of the individuals, but is rather a good thing that happens when one is able to defeat something within themselves. So even the the motif we're so used to of the flood being used as punishment can also be used as reward in a way. So all of these ambiguities and opposites which are at play in this symbolism ultimately leads us to the difference between the lake of fire and the lake of paradise. I suspect that they're both the same image, but they're differentiated by the individual human relation to the factor which creates the images people experience, both in NDEs and in inner phenomena such as dreams or visions. That factor would be what Jung called the self, the totality of the psyche, which includes our consciousness and is often indistinguishable from a God image. And in this case, the self is appearing as a lake which can have a negative or positive connotation or manifestation. As we mentioned previously, the fact that it is a lake means that it's finite, that we can have a relation to it, that we as limited creatures can walk around the edge of the lake and be able to see it from all sides and encircle it and make a connection with it in a way that would be more difficult in the form of the ocean, let's say, of an infinite sea, which is too big for us to walk around. With that said, though, it is still a natural symbol of the self. It is abstract. It's not embodied or in a human form, such as a personal deity or like Christ or Buddha. It doesn't have the ability to communicate in the the human sphere, but the fact that it is curtailed in a lake means that it is more capable of human interaction than the infinite expanse of ocean. Indeed, from the examples that we've discussed so far, it is often a deity or spirit or figure within the lake 
that is able to make contact with the individual, at least in the mythology and religious ideas of people around the world. And despite all the different forms that this symbolism can manifest itself worldwide, the lake still has a coherent core of meaning as the land of the dead or the place where the ancestors live, the home of the gods. We saw that in the case of the Zuni with the Kachanas and in Lake Fundudzi of the Vinda people. We also saw the lake as the entrance to the underworld and ideas surrounding the Lake Avernus in Italy. We've also seen the lake be a source of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy and divination, such as in Lamo Lazo of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, in which they meditate and are granted visions by the goddess in the lake and are able to find the next reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. In a similar way, we read a passage from Mercia Eliad on shamanism, in which the novice initiate shaman may sleep by the edge of a lake of a sacred spot and receive visions and trials from a spirit in the lake. And then we also have the other sacred Tibetan lake that we mentioned, Lake Manasarovar, whose name literally means mind or intellect or knowledge. Let me read you a brief little snippet from an NDE I found from a woman whose name I do not know, but she was struck by lightning and then had quite a long near-death experience. But this part stood out to me. Quote, I saw angels, and they spoke to me, showing me a lake. And in the lake, they showed me future events that would take place on earth, which have, in fact, taken place. End quote. I think these various cultural examples of lake symbolism that we've talked about today bear a remarkable resonance with the meaning and coherence of the symbolism as it appears in near-death experiences. Not only in this little snippet that I read of a near-death experience that I found on the IONS website, but also in the five or six near-death experiences that I read in the beginning of the episode which featured a lake. In these cases, the lake is a place of wonder and beauty and peace, a calm after the traumatic experience of dying or being close to death. There, one might meet entities of deceased loved ones or spirits, or just have a brief moment before having to go back to life on earth. It is essentially an image of the afterlife or heaven or paradise. Hence, all of the mythological ideas of the lake being the home of the dead, the abode of spirits, lines up perfectly with that conception. The lake can also be the source out of which new life emerges, as we saw in Cleo's vision after her near-death experience. In association with the prayer to the Virgin Mary, she sees the soul of her unborn daughter entering her body from the lake. We also saw this exact same idea echoed in what we learned from Mercia Eliad about the East Asian view of dragons and that they were symbolic of procreation and the creative power of life 
and were often found in pools and ponds and lakes. And that idea also resonated with the python god of fertility of the Vinda people, which was also closely associated with the lake. So it's not only a place of death, as even the etymology of the word lake might suggest with certain roots meaning the grave, but the lake is also a place of life, and the place out of which life emerges. As we finish up this episode, I want to share another near-death experience that features a lake. This too is coming from the IONS website, and I do not know the name of the individual who had it. But this person was a teenager in the late 60s and was in a terrible plane crash. And this is what happened. Quote, I found myself going warp speed through this tunnel place. It was bright and light, but I could see past this a dark blackness. I knew it was infinity out there. As fast as I was moving, suddenly I stopped. I stood on what felt like the edge of a lakeshore. It wasn't a bright place. It was dim, and I could hear the sound of water, like a lakeshore. It was as if little laps of water were hitting the shoreline, peaceful and rhythmic. I was alone, and it was very quiet except for the sound of what seemed like water, a river, or a lake. All of a sudden, I heard giggling and laughing. I looked up and across this lake, river, divide, or whatever, and saw these three spheres on my far left. They looked like big cotton balls, but ethereal, not dense like cotton. They were so excited to see me. I knew it. I sensed it. Everything said was all telepathic, as if energy thoughts coming across. Communication was fast. I didn't have to wait or think about it. I just knew. Their laughter and excitement felt so contagious. I just wanted to go over there. It was so drawing. For example, when you're sitting at a restaurant and the table near you is having such a good time laughing hysterically, you want to find out what's so funny and laugh too. I was ready to go over and find out what was so funny. They immediately stopped me and said, no will come to you. In the next immediate second, they were on my side. They just came in me, all three. They melded into me, and I realized how great communication is without words. Mouthing words is so slow. This is the last thing that happened. End quote. So there we have it. The lake is a boundary between this world and the next and a place of merging, where again, these spirits, these entities, become one with the individual who had that NDE. And it seems to be characterized by a sense of joy and contagious laughter. And I think that's probably the best place to end part one of this episode today. Thank you very much for listening to this first real exploration of what decoding death is, and I hope you found it meaningful or compelling or interesting, or at least got something of value out of it. Ultimately, the goal of this podcast is to better understand these symbols and images associated with death 
so that we can recognize them and integrate them whenever we encounter them within ourselves, and thus find our own answer to the question of life after death. I hope we at least made a little bit of progress towards that goal today, got our feet in the water, so to speak. And as we started with the quote by Rumi, which was, Who could be so lucky who comes to a lake for water and sees the reflection of moon? I hope that now we can approach that quote with new ears and new understanding of what it can mean. Here in the near future, we will continue to do so as we follow this with part two of this episode, in which we look at the relation of the lake to the ideas of salvation and damnation, and the question of when we die, whether we'll see a lake of bliss or a lake of fire.